So welcome to Literary Hangover. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt Leck. With me is Elk Scuns. Hello. Grace Jackson. Hi. Uh, today we're talking about The Crucible by Arthur Miller, uh, 1953. And uh, here we have him with uh, Charlie Rose. Uh, good old Charlie Rose. Another guy, victim of a witch trial. Yeah. Okay, Alex. <laughs> I told you not to bring that up on the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, no. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're gonna. It's actually a very good interview. It's very funny that at one point, Charlie Rose is like, "So how do we get anything done?" It seems like Americans are so frustrated with gridlock in Washington, and you look oh, at the no. date; it's like 1992. <laughs> Uh, it's, um, the entire like tax code had been completely rewritten like three years ago. Like yeah. everything has been completely ripped apart. And they're like, yeah, but we could do more stuff. Um, and what I like about this interview is you get a sense of uh, Miller's politics right off the bat. There is much talk. Welcome, first of all. Thank you. There is much talk today about a revival on Broadway. Uh, do you? What do you make of that? Well, uh, count the plays. There aren't many. Uh, I, it's not a revival. It's that there are a few mu- musicals are making a lot of money. Uh, but the uh, sickness is there. I don't see any sign of it going away. Uh, it's simply that they opened a couple of hits, uh, which were drawn from really the past. They're not new shows. Guys and Dolls, Most Happy Fellas. Right. Um, and the the Gershwin, yeah, piece. Gershwin, crazy about you, I guess it is. Right, yeah. But yeah. it's uh, this is not a. Uh, we don't have a healthy theater because uh, we're not being presented with the issues that you have to resolve in order to create a theater. And wait a minute, we don't have a healthy theater because we're not being presented with the issues you have to have. Does that mean the playwrights are not presenting us with the issues? No, the society isn't. You know, the the plays come out of a situation. Uh, it's no accident that uh, at certain points in history you get a lot of plays. It's, uh, there's a confluence of things that bring about a sufficient interest by serious writers in the theater. Uh, what we have now is the ultimate development of the market economy as far as the theater is concerned. That is to say, a few shows make a lot of money and they leave nothing behind them when they close. By that I mean, uh, we don't have a theater culture. We don't have a group of actors gradually developing their art over a period of years. Uh, so that uh, you get an Olivier, you get a Richardson, you get a, any number of absolutely accomplished actors. Or McKellen. Or Neiden McKellen. We get people who are in and out. And they're in and out not because they're not nice people, it's that the situation makes it impossible for an actor to remain in the theater uh, for the most part. There are very few, like George Scott, Mm -hmm. who will hang around. He'll also have a movie career, which is okay, but he does come back. But I thought the theater was fueled by writers, not by (laughs) actors. Well, it is, but let's confront the situation. This is like the Dave Rubin focus on ideas, right? Like outside of any sort of uh, understanding of the market or economic forces, right? Like I, like it's just somebody just has to come up with a great idea, yeah, uh, and then there will be great plays. Maybe it's just people aren't thinking hard enough about what kind of theater we need to be popular. 
Yeah, I'm glad that Charlie Rose was able to like read <laughs> Arthur Miller and kind of go with him, but the introduction question was was like, how does it feel to have a revival, pretty much? And <laughs> Arthur yeah. Miller's like, well, I don't feel anything because the play culture in this country is shit, and it will never, ever get better. Yeah, that revival talk is uh, marketing Yeah, <laughs> for the current uh, monopolistic plays. Yeah. I, I, what do you think he's talking about? Would you have any notion, 1992... What's big in theater? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily speaking to that particular zeitgeist, but I think the way that America um, presents art, especially live art, like theater art, has is not nearly as robust as like any European country because it still operates with like a profit motive for the most part. There's just not a very big uh, safety net for or like nonprofit. Um, uh, money surplus going into to pay for that kind of talent like they talking about that can last for a long time or like repertory theater that like can often like fail or is like meant to fail like when i worked at a, a non-profit theater they the tickets would be you know like 40 to 50 dollars like quite expensive but even mm. at the end of the day that's would usually be about 10 percent of like the cost of a given show so it's like someone yeah. might as well just make them free at that point. Right. I think in this interview he he goes on to talk directly about how in Europe and in the UK there's just much more like support for the theatre. Um, and I think there is a difference in culture in that at least, I'm not sure if it's true anymore, but in the past I think British people did go to the theatre in the same way that Americans in the same period would go to the movies. Mm. You know, there was that culture. Can a writer, how can a writer live in this theater? He can't do it. It's not, it's not possible. Uh, I have this play on, The, the Price, and uh, there, to have a culture, you have to have a past. Mm -hmm. We don't allow the past into the theater. There are a few revivals now and then. I'm talking about straight plays now, mm -hmm. not musicals. Right. Uh, so that a whole generation grows up and they don't know what happened 10 years ago. And nothing piles up, nothing accrues, nothing develops. It's, uh, we're constantly starting all over again. It's as though you burned all the libraries and all the books And what happened, the last what month. did we miss? What has to happen for a culture well, to I have that? I think what has to happen is very simple. It's what has always happened in the theater, one way or another. The theater... To be a, a uh, continuous developing thing has to have support. You can't do it only on the audience. It has never happened. Not in Shakespeare's time, not in the Greeks' time, not in Chekhov's time, Ibsen's time. Not in Britain today. And certainly not in Britain today, and not in Sweden, not anywhere where there is a going theater. Mm -hmm. I just directed Death of a Salesman in Stockholm, they have a theater with six stages in it, 90 actors under 365 days a year contracts. And they gradually develop people. I have a Biff in the play who's playing in one of Ingmar Bergman's productions on his days off. He's already been Hamlet. He's done Richard III. He's now Biff. Okay, yeah, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead uh, where he continues on how you basically need state support of uh, the theater. 
let's say whoever we feel that we want to put on this pedestal, you and Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill and, and then go to other ages and other times and whether it's Chekhov and Shakespeare and, and, and all of the best, regardless of a nationality, what would they share in common, do you think? What gift? Well, what? I hesitate to say it. Oh, I don't mean to, don't be, don't be embarrassed by putting yourself in the, in the category of those people. Uh, well, but just I tell me. I don't do that, but I mean, I, I understand your question. I personally think that what the big ones have in common is a fierce uh, moral sensibility, which is uh, unquenchable, and that they are all burning with some anger at the way the world is. Uh, the littler ones have made a peace with it, and the bigger ones can't make any peace. And are they fewer today? You know, uh, who knows? While we're speaking, somebody may be up on a, some corner, some apartment house now writing a masterpiece. With an idea of burning in him or her. Yeah, it could be. So I'm not prepared to say that it's over at all. I could repeat, boringly, I admit, that the situation in the theater repels that kind of talent. Because there's no incentive. See, we blew the audience. The audience for this kind of stuff has, has become minimal. Uh, we, the prices are too high. A lot of people right. who would love to go simply cannot go. The whole, I mean, school teachers, uh, intellectuals, or people who don't make a lot of money. It's a hundred dollars any way you cut it. It's really insane. You yeah. can't expect by the time you pay to get there and eat dinner and all. Uh, that that's that by itself uh, makes it impossible to speak in the terms I've been speaking. Now, have we? Can you argue without being too pompous and pretentious that we are at a loss as a nation? because the theater is not alive with the great conflicts of our time and helping us understand who we are and the great dilemmas that we face. And if we were grappling with those issues, both in the theater and in our public dialogue, we'd be better off as a society. I'm sure of it. But uh, let me just say, we've, we're, not really, uh, we're not really alone in this. You see, uh, the closest related culture to ours is the British right. in this sense. And if the British had not established the British National Theatre back in the 50s, uh, they would have exactly the situation we've got. Namely, a purely commercialized theatre, which cannot take great, great risks, not because they're not nice fellows, but because the costs are simply beyond mm -hmm. what reason would suggest. Uh, the British theatre now the Broadway part of it, the West End, is on the ropes. Why? Because their costs have gone up and they cannot risk what they used to be able to risk. The National Theatre and the, the other subsidized theatres from time to time are doing marvelous work. I like the idea that the theatre would be helpful. Um, like I think of the amount of frankly to fetishize ideas again the amount of ideas shakespeare packs into like certain like a few lines i think it is an amazing art form and when earlier um miller talked about there being no sense of permanence or sense of accumulation of history i feel like 
we're in a different, uh, at least media environment as far as that's concerned. So to the extent it's a technological problem and not a human failing, uh, perhaps now is different. Uh, that said, like, I don't, like, how do you, what do you think the state of theater is now compared to 1992? I don't really have a sense. Uh, I don't know if it'd be, it'd be tough to be, cause I don't, I don't know enough about the state of theater at that, uh-huh. at that level. I, I can only like speak to, like the American culture and it's it's interactions with art at large which is pretty minimal and is being in my opinion not stamped out but leveled by certain capitalist interests right that uh, like in the way that he's talking about Americans don't know their own history or don't know their own their own selves because they don't can't see any kind of like reflection of it in their art form that is 100% true mm-hmm. if you look at like like I'm a fan of like the Star Wars movies. I think they look pretty cool and yeah. they're like fun to watch. But there's nothing there. And yeah, if, yeah. if there is something there, it's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of an right. idea. There's there's nothing that like us as a polis isn't becoming any more the I don't know how to how to explain the the psyche isn't being raised in any serious way by any of these things. If anything, it's mitigating that kind of uh elevating ability that art does. Yeah, I almost think, sorry to bother you, the reason people like us reacted so positively toward that is, like, finally it seems at least someone's trying that. Yeah. Um, at least on a left-wing side of things. And you don't want to be so dramatic to say it doesn't exist. There's still incredible pieces of art that are made literally every year. Mm-hmm. I just think that if people who didn't have that kind of money or or leisure time were able to go to say like a local theater in Indiana or like be exposed to see like dance or something in Mm. Montana or Missouri at little to no cost. I think it would be a much different culture. Right. And then I was just thinking in the past few years, the one time where theater has been kind of read politically or had like a political valence was when during that Hamilton I was gonna performance, bring up Hamilton. you know, people mm-hmm. were like protesting Mike Pence's presence in the audience. And I just think the fact that that is the one thing that sprung to mind is it, it's very telling that yeah, that is the state of things. Because we should reiterate at least my conspiracy theory that Hamilton is State Department propaganda. Yep. Um, Anyway, we won't get into too deeply into that. Uh, I just, I w- sorry, I just want but to just talk- this idea oh. that like that's as edgy as it gets. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's it's really depressing. Or that that's e- that's yeah. even like a, a subset of of like an average American, where like the average ticket cost is, is hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get in there. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like he was running into the masses so much as he was running into like the fellow one percent. Probably. Yeah, the people who he may have seen at parties yeah. <laughs> who are like performing their outrage in yeah. public in this very sanctioned space. Um, but just one, one, not to put too fine a point on it, but the, the, I, I you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cautious when it comes to like, you know, people's exposure to art will make a better society. Cause I don't, mm. I, I think that's like a trap that leftists can get stuck in and like, you know, like arts real arts purpose and in, in, you know, the education of the masses and stuff like that, I feel like is really problematic. But I think a, a confident thing to say is that people being exposed to art and art forms is it would make it would give them a richer and more vibrant life, and I think that's enough of a reason to to 
let them see it at little to no cost, basically. And I think we have to say also that theatre specifically is a very particular form of that in that people are literally sharing space and time. They yeah. are inhabiting the same room. Yeah. It's a very intense psychological experience that you have collectively. And I think that has power in and of itself in terms mm-hmm. of building community yeah. for better or worse, maybe. Yeah. I might have mentioned this before, but I... I used to, for about five years, five, six, seven years, reg- really regret missing my opportunity to see Kevin Spacey play Richard the oh. Second, the third, at the Globe mm-hmm. Theater. In I'm pretty sure it's Richard Richard the Second. Oh, really? Um, maybe I'm wrong. Are you glad you didn't? Now? I mean, <laughs> now I feel <laughs> I, I, I just, defending him. My guilt has just been <clears throat> ma- massively alleviated. Yep. Um, <laughs> Now it would have just been, oh, had I gone to like a curiosity is like this guy. Um, anyway, get, getting back on topic here. I want to read from uh, a cha- the beginning of a chapter of a book from, this is part of a, a collection of articles published by Amsterdam University Press in 2012, Divided Dream Worlds, The Cultural Cold War in East and West. And this is from a chapter written by Nathan Abrams, an unofficial cultural ambassador, Arthur Miller and the Cultural Cold War. Uh, Abrams writes, I shall present a case study of an intellectual who attempted to resist this hegemony, Arthur Miller. In doing so, however, he was ultimately co-opted and rejected by both the United States and the Soviet Union. Miller was explicitly unwilling to assist the anti-communist hegemony uh, in America, while acknowledging the totalitarian nature of the Soviet regime, he did not think that America represented a better, a better alternative. He wrote, The work of art in which we really examine ourselves, or which is critical of society, is not what this government regards as good propaganda. This attitude towards culture, he felt, is a disservice to us all, because it rendered the country open to extremely dangerous suspicions which can spread and strain its whole effort. What is more, its attitudes towards culture... Quote, have often made it possible for Russian propaganda to raise fear of us in foreign peoples. Miller was not prepared, therefore, to disseminate pro-American propaganda during the Cold War. He would never genuflect before anybody. His belief in the universality of art repelled any notion of its specific or contingent mobilization. Uh, quote, I am making a claim for art as a communion of the human spirit and therefore by definition something which cannot be nationalistically confined or even used politically. Uh, for both political and national concepts are concepts of exclusion, devices for the wielding of worldly power. Furthermore, Miller implicitly criticized those writers, artists, poets, and intellectuals who lent their services to the American effort. I believe, uh, quote, I believe that once we assent to the idea that high policy alone is sacred and that every other value can easily be sacrificed to it, we shall have abdicated our independence as writers and citizens. Uh, those who did so sacrifice their critical autonomy and service of the state for, quote, the mission of the written word is not to buttress high policy, but to proclaim the truth, the truth for whose lack we must surely die. Uh, yet he also felt those who were silent were guilty too. quote, we have by silence given this consent and by silence helped to raise the state to a kind of power over us all. Overall, he believed that freedom to write, uh, to create unmolested and blackguarded by government is at least equal to the sanctity of high policy. Miller thus attempted to fulfill the function of that type of intellectual who, in his own words, quote, takes on the task of correcting power and defending the truth against it, of speaking truth to power. So, like, a lot of Orwell, I think, uh, is, 
Miller is a candidate for the uh, American Orwell, I guess we could say. A mm. um, bit more successful with the ladies, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to come to find. So he's got nothing like Orwell, actually, because that's yeah. all that matters. Yeah, really, in the in the real scoreboard <laughs> of life, um, Marilyn Monroe uh, is... The rest. Yeah. His first wife. Uh, in addition to his theatrical production, Miller constantly contributed articles... Uh, to newspapers as well as political and intellectual journals throughout his life. Miller was not content to write plays or to write about his plays. He also commented on contemporary affairs where he could. He used his plays, articles, speeches, and novels as vehicles to resist what he perceived to be the deleterious effects of the Cold War on American domestic freedoms, as well as the Soviet treatment of its intellectuals, writers, and Jewish citizens. An unforeseen result of this activity, however, was that whether through choice or otherwise, Miller became embroiled in the Cold War and, in a sense, was used by both sides to further their ends. He became what I call an unofficial cultural ambassador. On the American front, almost from the moment Arthur Miller hit the public consciousness, his works, most notably All My Sons, 1947, and Death of a Salesman, 1949, were identified as Marxist critiques of American capitalism and war conduct. The FBI described the former as, quote, party-line propaganda, uh, and the latter as, quote, a negative delineation of American life, which, quote, struck a shrewd blow against American values. Um, Death of a Salesman. Nice. Have you seen Death of a Salesman, either mm-hmm. of you? I think a long time ago, yeah. It's a pretty popular, um, I think the most popular. What's old. the general summary of that? Do you need to you do it? It's just um, this story of a family drama and the... Um, they're trying to get by essentially and the father continues to have faith in the system that fails him for the most part so it's like um i'm becoming a god in central florida i don't know that one it's really good kirsten dunst gets involved in a pyramid scheme it sounds good it is good i really like it actually i'm not and i'm not being uh sarcastic um so yeah the fbi calls it parliament propaganda for the communists and a native delineation of american life uh, several weeks after his play all my sons opened a letter to the new york times accused it of being communist propaganda it certainly did not help miller that left-wing organs in both the united states and soviet union interpreted the play as an attack on american materialism and hence viewed it favorably uh so yeah like fairly fairly left-wing uh, sort of guy He's uh, in the Communist Party. He was. He so he had a collaborator, Ilya Kazan, who was going to make a play, a screenplay for Hollywood, called The Hook, and that was going to be about trying to unionize the docks to fight the mob, basically. And Hollywood's like, no, we prefer uh, the docks ununionized, the mob to continue having control over. Well, it. do you do you see, remember they, their yeah their addendum they, to it? Yeah, he sent the script for vetting from the FBI and Mm -hmm. they sent it back or Roy Cohn sent it back saying like, you know, we need to replace the mob with communists. Yeah. Like what the hell does that even mean? And he's like, damn it. As soon as I make your play pro American, you refuse to, Go yeah. along with it. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. what he said. Yeah, definitely. funny how... That's what he says fun. to Miller, because Miller's yeah. like, no, this is not going to fly. That was definitely one of those things where it was... You know, it's not from the too distant past, but it came screaming at you as if it could have happened oh, yeah. any time today. Like, you could see Roy Cohn right there. Yeah. yeah. Especially pertinent, considering, like, all the Jack Ryan talk lately. Oh, yeah. This is from a PBS... Uh, American Masters documentary, None Without Sin, on the relationship between Ilya Kazan 
and uh, collaborator Arthur Miller. And Kazan uh, uh, famously collaborated with HUAC, naming some of his uh, commun- former comrades. And uh, for 10 years, Miller uh, gave him the cold shoulder, and then they sort of reconciled. That's what this uh, documentary is about. But here's the part we were just talking about. The Hook is a screenplay about a militant union uh, organizer. And uh, it can be seen, if you want to so read it, as a, a play that might be sympathetic to a certain kind of almost communist milit- militancy. Uh, Kazan didn't see it that way. Maybe Miller did. Uh, but uh, Harry Cohn certainly did. He saw the play as perhaps being some uh, subterranean way of getting communist messages into a Hollywood film. So he actually has it vetted by the FBI. Uh, to make sure that the uh, the screenplay doesn't have any uh, uh, communist uh, subversion in it. Miller was stunned by Cuff's demand. This was not the way playwrights were treated on Broadway, but he acquiesced. He and Kazan wanted to make the picture. Besides, what would the FBI find? Miller, in his mind, had written an accurate portrait of the waterfront. Sitting in on the meeting between Miller, Kazan, and Harry Cohn, was an unknown actress. Okay, so now we'll move a little bit ahead in the same documentary where uh, HUAC starts to get involved. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Five years earlier, in the fall of 1947, the era of the blacklist had begun. Hollywood had long been under attack for subverting the morals of Americans. Charges of too much sex and violence in the movies were almost as old as the industry itself. But with the beginning of the Cold War, HUAC, or the House Un-American Activities Committee, set out to prove something new, that Hollywood was also a mouthpiece for communist propaganda. I have seen things that I thought were against what I consider good Americanism, in my feeling, and I I have seen it in, uh, I've seen pictures I thought shouldn't have been made, shouldn't have been made, let me put it that way. It's absolute nonsense that a few communists were slipping by code or by gesture or illusion somehow communist messages into films. It was not happening. The American movie all over the world was taken absolutely accurately, I think, as uh, a record of one simple declaration. America is a great country. Get there as quick as you can. The chairman of HUAC was J. Parnell Thomas, a man who would soon be convicted for having embezzled thousands from the government during the war. Also on the committee was John Rankin, an avowed segregationist and a vocal anti-Semite who once in the halls of Congress called Walter Winchell a slime-mongering kike. Sitting with them was a freshman congressman from California, Richard Nixon. To these men, the powers that comprised Hollywood paid tribute. The committee initially calls a group of so-called friendly witnesses, and these are people who are basically sympathetic to the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee and do not need to be subpoenaed to testify. Uh, These are people like the studio moguls, uh, Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, some of the conservative motion picture stars like Robert Taylor, Adolph Manjou, Gary Cooper. I have never read Karl Marx, and I don't know the basis of communism beyond what I've uh, picked up from hearsay. Uh. What I've heard, I don't like it, because it isn't on the level. 
it's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the That's basic principles of America. It's John Howard Lawson. <coughs> they also called a group, actually 19 Hollywood people, who they knew were in the Communist Party. Now, how did they know these people were in the Communist Party? Because they had uh, evidence that the FBI had collected and given to them. The FBI had performed a quote-unquote black bag job. They had broken into the offices of the Communist Party in Los Angeles and copied their membership lists. And so they knew exactly who was in the party, and they photocopied people's membership cards and gave those photocopies to the committee. The committee, looking to make the most of the publicity it was generating, chose 10 of the 19 writers and directors it knew to be the most steadfast defenders of the communist doctrine. In October 1947, they were subpoenated. That is not the of the motion picture industry and to invade the right not only of me, but of the producers to their thoughts, to their opinions. And this I will not permit. Go ahead, Mr. Stripling, ask the question. <coughs> ask In the question. that, I ask, accuse... Just a minute. I beg, ask I another beg question. Pardon, ask another question of the witness. I accuse a member ask of the another question. You will not accuse anybody. You will not accuse anybody. I do accuse anybody. Step aside from the witness. Just a moment, Mr. Chairman. Just a moment. The confrontational demeanor of the Hollywood Ten, as they had become known, did little to help their cause. Many who initially stood behind the Ten, stars like Humphrey Bogart, Lucille Ball, and Frank Sinatra, abandoned them. I detest communists, declared Bogart, in a public mea culpa. Defending the Ten, he wrote, had been ill-advised, even foolish. But the committee's antics played little better. The press derided them, and many in Congress complained that HUAC embarrassed their hallowed institution. The image of HUAC is they're a bunch of clowns, and that the 47 hearings so discredit HUAC that they don't begin investigating Hollywood again until 1951. And so among their colleagues and in the press, HUAC is considered uh, uh, to have run a three-ring circus. And it's very unusual that Hollywood, despite that, succumbs and, and you know, folds like a cheap suit. Because the executives hated communism, basically. Yeah, it's just the way, like, clean house. Yeah, which is, I think, the message that gets overshadowed in this, right? Like, you can like you can get mad at Kazan for spilling the beans, right? But ultimately, it's the governmental powers and the um, executives that weren't willing to stand up for their workers because they, frankly, like, they're complicit. It's the same thing with, uh, like, Donald Trump, for instance, there's certain people were confused at Donald Trump's anti-immigrant stance because big business benefits from uh, illegal immigration. But actually enforcing that, those sorts of enforcements basically allow you to turn the screws on those labor forces more. Uh, I can say to you, you don't want to reach your hand into that grinder of chicken parts. Well, I'm going to call ice on you, basically. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to that American Masters documentary. Let's now go to a, a really good performance of The Crucible, which it's the production is so good that I'm worried it's illicit because um, it's on YouTube and there's voice actors for each different part, but I don't. there's no credit for who is doing the parts. 
but there is a credit for who did the music. So anyway, I'll link to it in the in the show notes. Uh, it's YouTube's problem, but uh, I'm gonna go to it here. It's pretty well done. And I think um, in the, the basically we're, we're gonna play um, the first twenty minutes or so of Act One, um, maybe summarize two and three, and then a little bit from Act Four here. A note on the historical accuracy of this play. A bit overdramatic. This play is not history in the sense in which the word is used by the academic historian. Dramatic purposes have... This is uh, John Miller's uh, introduction to the play. Mm. This is Arthur Miller's introduction to the play. Sometimes required many characters to be fused into one. The number of girls involved in the crying out has been reduced. Abigail's age has been raised. While there were several judges of almost equal authority, I have symbolized them all in Hawthorne and Danforth. However, I believe that the reader will discover here the essential nature of one of the strangest and most awful chapters in human history. The fate of each character is exactly that of his historical model, and there is no one in the drama who did not play a similar, and in some cases, exactly the same, role in history. As for the characters of the persons, little is known about most of them excepting what may be surmised from a few letters, the trial record, certain broadsides written at the time, and references to their conduct in sources of varying reliability. They may therefore be taken as creations of my own, drawn to the best of my ability in conformity with their known behavior, except as indicated in the commentary I have written for this text. Act 1 an overture. A small upper bedroom in the home of Reverend Samuel Paris, Salem, Massachusetts, in the spring of the year 1692. There is a narrow window at the left. Through its leaded panes, the morning sunlight streams. A candle still burns near the bed, which is at the right. A chest, a chair, and a small table are the other furnishings. At the back, a door opens on the landing of the stairway to the ground floor. The room gives off an air of clean spareness. The roof rafters are exposed, and the wood colors are raw and unmellowed. As the curtain rises, Reverend Paris is discovered kneeling beside the bed, evidently in prayer. His daughter, Betty Paris, aged ten, is lying on the bed inert. At the time of these events, Paris was... Uh, one minor difference here, and then we I will actually want to take a historical aside here is uh inertness wasn't the symptom of witchcraft mm -hmm. uh the, the they actually had they were crawling around and sort of acting sort of feral mm, trying uh, to run up the chimney and like clawing under chairs and stuff but i thought it was interesting and that's actually something that was unresolved for me is the idea that like the primary victims of the witch trials were like marginalized people in the community i've read conflicting yeah, that's about that. typically the case, but that's not necessarily the case with uh, the Salem witch trials. For instance, John F Proctor, in the in this play, he's just a farmer, but he's actually uh, he's like a tavern he, owner. He owned a tavern on the high road, uh, which was one of the big uh, sort of hot points for witchcraft. Um, and he was wealthy. He inherited, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, also, same with Rebecca Nurse. Um, uh, um, Miller makes a insinuation about her husband basically uh, engendering resentment in everyone else because his property was doing so well. Mm 
Um, so, but but I, it is true in the sense, and I, I think Arthur Miller captures both because right away you have Tatuba, the first uh, person accused, and then Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, and uh, Sarah Good was a beggar. Yep. And certainly in the movie, in the '96 film version, which Miller wrote the screenplay for, that becomes really clear that the first two or three people accused are like. You know, they're all old, they're badly dressed, they're clearly, like, poor. And it just, it, it does seem very clear in that respect. Yeah, and one thing they missed about uh, Sarah Osborne is one of the reasons they didn't trust her is because she basically indentured her own husband. Mm-hmm. She indentured a guy and then ended up marrying him, and there was uh, insinuations around that. Yeah. It's an interest mm-hmm. You know, if these girls had never heard of witches before and they started acting like this, it'd be very, very concerning, right? Because uh, it would seem to be like this is some sort of um, metaphysical truth out there. Uh, However, when you actually look at witch culture, and we touched on that in the Salem Witch Trials episode Mm -hmm. a little bit, um, about how much... Like, we basically developed the printing press and then just filled it with, like, Bibles and witchcraft. Uh, Yeah, then all of a sudden, like, everyone's daily life is filled with... It's like a spirit-haunted world. So here's from uh, Emerson Baker, A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Witch Trials and the American Experience, which we uh, cited in the Salem episode. Um, The afflicted girls of Salem had a wide body of knowledge of cases of witchcraft. Uh, Many accounts of recent cases were circulating in print in 1692. The importance placed by Puritans on individuals reading the Bible for themselves meant that at the time of the Salem trials, literacy rates were rapidly climbing. Although female literacy rates trailed men's, a minister's daughter and niece would have been able to read. Marginalized members of society, such as young servant girls, might not have been able to study these accounts. But even if they could not read, knowledge of witchcraft, particularly published cases, seemed to have spread rapidly in the vigorous oral culture of the 17th century. Indeed, the symptoms of the afflicted in Salem seem to suggest direct knowledge of several recent outbreaks, including the Lowscroft case in England and recent affliction of the Goodwin children of Boston. Accounts had been published of both of these cases. Diodat Lawson observed a grievous fit by Abigail Williams, who ran dangerously about the house, going near the fire, gathering firebrands and throwing them. That's interesting, that omission. Like her, th- the, the real report of Abigail Williams' behavior is her grabbing fire out of the fire, which is like very intense. And har- I mean, talk about hard to fake. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was some account I read that suggested there might have been some PTSD going on as well, just in terms of um, a lot of these girls probably lost family members in, like, Indian raids. Yep, exactly, um, yeah. King Philip's War, and so on. Um. And I think Abby actually says in the play, she says that she lost her parents, that they their heads were dashed on the yeah. pillow next to hers, and that she's basically seen some shit and yeah, exactly, capable and that, of anything. She's doing great. That was true of uh, many of the accusers, or uh, I guess the uh, AS accusers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say witches, but they were calling other people witches. So yeah, Abigail Williams, who ran dangerously about the house, going near the fire, gathering firebrands and throwing them, sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching her arms as high as she could and crying, wish, 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 several times. Uh, really like to fly. Uh, yeah. And there, there's a line in the Crucible, like, uh, some people said they can fly. Like, they're trying to climb out the window and fly. Yeah. 
Uh, Lawson was told that on other occasions, Abigail would appear to try to run up the chimney and, quote, had attempted to go into the fire. Martha Goodwin would have to be restrained as well to keep her out of the fire. In the Lowstraft case, a bewitched girl ran around and round the house, ran round uh, about the house holding her apron, crying, hush, hush. Like Abigail, she showed a strange fascination with fire. Abigail was not known to vomit pins, but she was struck. That was a famous witch thing, too. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, vomiting pins. And actually, I think it's more of a, it was kind of a magic trick, um, a circus sideshow type of thing. Um, there's a famous girl in England that vomited pins, and I think there's clearly, like, you know, some... I mean, maybe she could genuinely vomit pins. I don't know. I think it's probably some magic stuff. If you were at that show, you'd be like, can I take a closer look? Like, you just... Yeah, I mean, I'm getting my James Randi hat. Yeah. The Lowstoft outbreak occurred in 1662, but the account that includes these details was not published until 1682, and then it rapidly became widely available. In 1688, Cotton Mather, uh, um, who, you know, these are the real villains here. Yeah. The judges in, well, Danforth is there because Simon Bradstreet's too old. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So he made Danforth go out there. Stoughton would be there, but Miller hasn't included him in this play. But uh, Stoughton was put there by the, uh, the Mathers. In 1688, Cotton Mather observed the Goodwin children in Boston. In the next year, he published memorable provinces, memorable providences relating to witchcrafts and possessions, uh, an account of uh, their case. Here, too, the account suggests that the tormented pretended to fly. Yeah, they would fly like geese. Yea, they would fly like geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground. And their arms waved like the wings of a bird. The Lowstraff case was published in 1682, and Mather's account of the good ones was printed in 1689. So these would have been the latest and best-known cases of witchcraft, presumably known not only to ministers and doctors, but also to young girls, especially those who lived in a parsonage. Now I want to go to a book we also cited in the Salem Witch Trials episode by Francis Hill, A Delusion of Satan. This also talks about the sort of witch culture that was going on. In 1692, Increase Mather was in London trying to negotiate, with little success, a new charter as much like the old one as possible. Before the start of this political upheaval, the versatile clergyman had had time to compose the first work of its day to give detailed accounts of paranormal occurrences, called An Essay for the Recording of Illustrious Providences, or more usually, though inaccurately, Remarkable Providences, it quickly became hugely influential and popular. This was intended. Its publication was a move calculated to encourage belief in things supernatural among the ordinary populace. Not that such belief was by any means lacking. But by the end of the 17th century, leading American Puritans were beginning to fear the subtle effects on feeling and thought of scientific developments, increasing commercialism and greater individualism. They felt strong anxieties about the colony's failure to hold to the original Puritans' ideals. In their eyes, the ferocious war with the Indians in 1675 and several smallpox epidemics were judgments from God on the colony's moral decline. On the all-important New England battleground in the cosmic war between good and evil, evil seemed to be winning. Remarkable Providences was intended as a graphic reminder of the forces involved, and of what was at stake. One of its most sensational tales was that of Elizabeth Knapp, a 16-year-old living in the house of a clergyman in Groton, 
who was taken after a very strange manner, sometimes weeping, sometimes laughing, sometimes roaring hideously, with violent motions of and agitations of her body, crying out, Money! Money! Mather's account was cribbed from a much longer one by the Reverend Samuel Willard. Elizabeth Knapp had lived with him and his family as a servant for two or three months, when at the end of October 1671 she began to suffer violent, inexplicable pains in her legs and breasts, and to feel as though someone were trying to strangle her. "'In November following,' says Mother, "'her tongue for many hours together was drawn like a semicircle up to the roof of her mouth, "'not to be removed, though some tried with their fingers to do it. Six men were scarce able to hold her in some of her fits, "'but she would skip about the house yelling and looking with a most frightful aspect. "'Her tongue was drawn out of her mouth to an extraordinary length.' "'In December a voice spoke through her closed lips, the words seeming to form in her throat.' They were terrible words, consisting of railings and revilings of Mr. Willard, and most horrid and nefarious blasphemies. It was assumed, by Samuel Willard and everyone else on the scene, that the voice was a demon's. Elizabeth accused a local woman of causing all this by witchcraft. The woman was sent for. Elizabeth touched her, eyes closed, and her touched sufferings her. temporarily ceased. This supposedly proved that the woman was a witch by showing that the evil possessing the victim had flowed back whence it came. But the woman was very sincere and holy. And despite the success of the touch test, the accusation lost credibility. Common sense had not, in this case, been entirely destroyed by fear and hysteria, as was to happen in Salem. And uh, so Willard, the guy reporting that Knapp case, corresponded with Mather, and Mather published that case as well. And so Abigail Williams and uh, Elizabeth Paris and all those girls would have been very familiar with those cases, which is very – that's fascinating to me, like to imagine how that would have orally um, – like who was the source of that knowledge? Who was reading it first? Like could have been any one of them. But we know like Paris would have had Cotton Mather's books in his uh, in his study, like uh, – I mean, I, I I find that the most fascinating part. If I could watch how this, I we talk about it like the the a germ of an idea spreads uh, through a community like that. Could they not have heard about it at church as well? Like I can imagine oh. them preaching about this. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a good point actually because uh, Samuel Paris has, and I wrote down this is one of his sermons, uh, and actually tweeted this out today. Christ knows how many devils there are in his church and who they are. Yeah. And oh dear. I mean, how could yeah, how how could these girls not like it's so available to them as a as a sort of narrative that they could try to enact onto the community basically. And a form of power, I mean like the only form of power really that they're given. Right. I think the fact that ground zero for this in particular is at a uh pastor's house makes the most sense in that like cause they would be the most exposed to like the more minute details so when like passerbys come they'd be like oh god <laughs> this right. is exactly as as we've read in that book yeah I, d I think it's worth just restating how extraordinary it is that literally the people in the community with the least power namely like young girls were able to kind of upend society in this way yeah invert the power hierarchy entirely mm -hmm. act one an overture a small upper bedroom in the home of reverend samuel paris salem massachusetts 
in the spring of the year 1692. There is a narrow window at the left. Through its leaded panes, the morning sunlight streams. A candle still burns near the bed, which is at the right. A chest, a chair, and a small table are the other furnishings. At the back, a door opens on the landing of the stairway to the ground floor. The room gives off an air of clean spareness. The roof rafters are exposed, and the wood colors are raw and unmellowed. As the curtain rises, Reverend Paris is discovered kneeling beside the bed, evidently in prayer. His daughter, Betty Paris, aged ten, is lying on the bed inert. At the time of these events, Paris was in his middle forties. In history, he cut a villainous path, and there is very little good to be said for him. He believed he was being persecuted wherever he went, despite his best efforts to win people and God to his side. In meeting, he felt insulted if someone rose to shut the door without first asking his permission. He was a widower with no interest in children or talent with them. He regarded them as young adults, and until this strange crisis, he, like the rest of Salem, never conceived that the children were anything but thankful for being permitted to walk straight, eyes slightly lowered, arms at the sides, and mouths shut until bidden to speak. His house stood in the town, but we today would hardly call it a village. The meeting house was nearby, and from this point outward, toward the bay or inland, there were a few small windowed dark houses snuggling against the raw Massachusetts winter. Salem had been established hardly forty years before. To the European world, the whole province was a barbaric frontier inhabited by a sect of fanatics who, nevertheless, were shipping out products of slowly increasing quantity and value. No one can really know what their lives were like. They had no novelists and would not have permitted anyone to read a novel if one were handy. Their creed forbade anything resembling a theater or vain enjoyment. They did not celebrate Christmas, and a holiday from work meant only that they must concentrate even more upon prayer. Which is not to say that nothing broke into this strict and somber way of life. When a new farmhouse was built, friends assembled to raise the roof, and there would be special foods cooked and probably some potent cider passed around. There was a good supply of ne'er-do-wells in Salem, who dallied at the shovel board in Bridget Bishop's tavern. Probably more than the... We have some old pastimes there. Shuffleboard, Shuffleboard. gets on the board. Yeah, put that on the uh, the list for everyone catching at home. It makes sense that that's old as hell. Because yeah. it just looks like the most boring game you could play standing upright, I feel like. Also, noting like things people did for fun, Cider gets a big shout-out throughout Cider? the entire play. And it sounds like Brooklyn. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Cider and Shuffleboard, Shuffleboard. And Cider. <laughs> yeah, it is. there's a place in Williamsburg you can do that. In the yeah, park. it's too bad there's not like a witch hunt here to clean this place out a little bit. <laughs> there are a lot of witches, uh, yeah. witch-identifying. I don't know if we, you should get into true. That throws me for a loop, that whole thing of like... I mean, I guess I kind of get it, but it's like the tragedy is that these women weren't witches it's uh it's a ahistorical sort of mythology feminist mythology which like, is fine like, like cool i've seen the shirt that's like you know where the daughters of the women that didn't burn and it's like that doesn't work for any other historical thing that's super offensive <laughs> it's like well, we're part of the people in the holocaust that didn't die yeah like, i think okay, cool i think uh this is the sort of atrocity that people 
Like like we talked about the sexy witch on a broomstick bumper sticker type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the witch on a broomstick. On like the people cop would just car. be very cut callous about this entire thing, even yeah. though it is like the more you read about it, it's just horrifying what these actual people went through. Because I think there's a there's some like people bullshitting here, but I think a lot of this is driven by genuine sort of fear of God and fear of Satan and, and fear of your neighbor. And fear, yeah, right, exactly. Hard work kept the morals of the place from spoiling. For the people were forced to fight the land like heroes for every grain of corn, and no man had very much time for fooling around. That there were some jokers, however, is indicated by the practice of appointing a two-man patrol whose duty was to walk forth in the time of God's worship to take notice of such as either... Lo- so John F. Kennedy? John F. Kennedy, but by way of, like, Alabama. <laughs> is indicated by the practice of appointing a two-man patrol whose duty was to walk forth in the time of God's worship to take notice of such as either lie about the meeting house without attending to the word and ordinances or that lie at home or in the fields without giving good account thereof and to take the names of such persons and to present them to the magistrates whereby they may be accordingly proceeded against. This predilection for minding other people's business was time-honored among the people of Salem, and it undoubtedly created many of the suspicions which were to feed the coming madness. It was also, in my opinion, one of the things that a John Proctor would rebel against, for the time of the armed camp had almost passed, and since the country was reasonably, although not wholly, safe, the old disciplines were beginning to rankle. But as in all such matters, the issue was not clear-cut, for danger was still a possibility, and in unity still lay the best promise of safety. The edge of the wilderness was close by. The American continent stretched endlessly west, and it was full of mystery for them. It stood, dark and threatening, over their shoulders night and day, for out of it Indian tribes marauded from time to time and Reverend Paris had parishioners who had lost relatives to these heathen. The parochial snobbery of these people was partly responsible for their failure to convert the Indians. Probably they also preferred to take land from heathens rather than from fellow Christians. At any rate, very few Indians were converted, and the Salem folk believed that the virgin forest was the devil's last preserve, his home base, and the citadel of his final stand. To the best of their knowledge, the American forest was the last place on earth that was not paying homage to God. For these reasons, among others, they carried about an air of innate resistance, even of persecution. Their fathers had, of course, been persecuted in England, so now they and their church found it necessary to deny any other sect its freedom, lest their new Jerusalem be defiled and corrupted by wrong ways and deceitful ideas. Uh, just a, a remark on that for a little bit, the New Jerusalem. I feel like there's a a big essay waiting to be written by somebody comparing our Zionist project with the Israeli one. Yeah, I've thought about that quite a lot, especially like, like why are like, like, why is the Golan Heights being renamed Trump Heights? Right. <laughs> like, like, like anyone who studies history would be like, you never, that's such a fucking curveball. But there's, there's little seeds there that's like, it's not just stupidity that like evangelical Christians are like attached to like the Zionist project. There's 
there's like some sort of kinship there being like, oh, we're speaking the same language a little bit. Yeah. And how there's like some sort of biased, and I don't know what, how this is created with its media or, but like that the idea that putting those things in the same lineage is like uh, conspiratorial or academic or, or something what rather than mean? just history repeating itself. Like this is the same, like it, a sim, it's a similar sort of colonial project. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sanctioned by your holy text, basically, and myths. Yeah. Believed, in short, that they held in their steady hands the candle that would light the world. We have inherited <laughs> this belief, and it has helped and hurt us. It helped them with the discipline it gave them. They were a dedicated folk, by and large, and they had to be to survive the life they had chosen or been born into in this country. The proof of their belief's value to them may be taken from the opposite character of the first Jamestown settlement, farther south in Virginia. The Englishmen who landed there were motivated mainly by a hunt for profit. They had thought... Uh, Salem and all, a lot of these co- colonies were founded for profit, too. They just had a stronger psychological operations wing, which mm-hmm. is the Puritan uh, you know, ideology thought to pick off the wealth of the new country and then return rich to England. They were a band of individualists and a much more ingratiating group than the Massachusetts men, but Virginia destroyed them. Massachusetts tried to kill off the Puritans, but they combined. They set up a communal society which, in the beginning, was little more than an armed camp with an autocratic and very devoted leadership. It was, however, an autocracy by consent, for they were united from top to bottom by a commonly held ideology whose perpetuation was the reason and justification for all their sufferings. So their self-denial, their purposefulness, their suspicion of all vain pursuits, their hard-handed justice, were altogether perfect instruments for the conquest of this space so antagonistic to man. But the people of Salem in 1692 were not quite the dedicated folk that arrived on the Mayflower. A vast differentiation had taken place, and in their own time a revolution had unseated the royal government and substituted a junta which was at this moment in power. The times, to their eyes, must have been out of joint, and to the common folk must have seemed as insoluble and complicated as do ours today. It is not hard to see how easily many could have been led to believe that the time of confusion had been brought upon them by deep and darkling forces. No hint of such speculation appears on the court record, but social disorder in any age breeds such mystical suspicions, and when, as in Salem, wonders are brought forth from below the social surface, it is too much to expect people to hold back very long from laying on the victims with all the force of their frustrations. The Salem tragedy, which is about to begin in these pages, developed from a paradox. It is a paradox in whose grip we still live, and there is no prospect yet that we will discover its resolution. Simply, it was this. For good purposes, even high purposes, the people of Salem developed a theocracy, a combine of state and religious power whose function was to keep the community together and to prevent any kind of disunity that might open it to destruction by material or ideological enemies. It was forged for a necessary purpose and accomplished that purpose. But all organization is and must be grounded on the idea of exclusion and prohibition 
just as two objects cannot occupy the same space. Evidently, the time came in New England when the repressions of order were heavier than seemed warranted by the dangers against which the order was organized. The witch hunt was a perverse manifestation of the panic which set in among all classes when the balance began to turn toward greater individual freedom. When one rises above the individual villainy displayed, one can only pity them all, just as we shall be pitied some day. It is still impossible for man to organize his social life without repressions, and the balance has yet to be struck between order and freedom. The witch hunt was not, however, a mere repression. It was also, and as importantly, a long overdue opportunity for everyone so inclined to express publicly his guilt and sins under the cover of accusations against the victims. It suddenly became possible, and patriotic and holy, for a man to say that Martha Corey had come into his bedroom at night, and that, while his wife was sleeping at his side, Martha laid herself down on his chest and nearly suffocated him. Of course, it was her spirit only, but his satisfaction at confessing himself was no lighter than if it had been Martha herself. One could not ordinarily speak such things in public. It's like, you, you idiots, it's just a dream. Yeah, yeah. It's a hallucination. It's a, it's sleep paralysis. Yeah, but you might you should get the law involved just in case. You know, it's just you want to make sure. Well, it's like it's almost you you don't blame them like if if you hear there's witch witches around and mm-hmm. something like that happens to you you haven't uh you know heard the skeptics podcasts about <laughs> hypnagogic <laughs> sleep paralysis yeah. you don't know what the hell happened you just saw a woman a succubus an incubus like that's where these it's the exact same hallucination just throughout time and i mean we maybe have made this point before but how it's like you know aliens it's the exact same sort of process you're half asleep half awake and something's in your room and it's like probing you or on top of you or but it's also got like a really clear sexual overtone i think in this and these are like sexualized fantasies you know of the power dynamic being flipped and uh, now here we'll get to the actual play and not just Arthur Miller's uh, commentary. Long-held hatreds of neighbors could now be openly expressed and vengeance taken despite the Bible's charitable injunctions. Land lust, which had been expressed before by constant bickering over boundaries and deeds, could now be elevated to the arena of morality. One could cry witch against one's neighbor and feel perfectly justified in the bargain. Old scores could be settled on a plane of heavenly combat between Lucifer and the Lord. Suspicions and the envy of the miserable toward the happy could and did burst out in the general revenge. Reverend Paris is praying now, and though we cannot hear his words, a sense of his confusion hangs about him. He mumbles, then seems about to weep, then he weeps, then prays again, but his daughter does not stir on the bed. The door opens, and his negro slave enters. Tituba is in her forties. Paris brought her with him. I'm going to stop right there. Tituba was most likely not uh, black. Uh, Miller's Africanized her, perhaps because of, you know, the civil rights stuff going on in the Jim Crow South. Um, I think that's maybe the the best... uh, artistic uh, explanation for the change, but she is more likely what we'd probably see as Native American. Um, Didn't he get that from Charles Upham, 
there was like a big work on Salem Witch Trials, which Arthur Miller read. It was written in 1867, just after the Civil War, and I think that was where she might have become kind of oh, Africanized um, in that account. Uh, yeah, that's very possible. I have I have heard that that was the main source he used, uh, that Upham source, so that's, that's likely. And we also get here that uh, Tatuba led the girls in a dancing uh, party, which is not what happened. That's it's not the case. The extent that Tatuba uh, was involved with magic, it was after the girls were showing signs of witch, witchcraft, quote unquote, which was the, you know, sort of acting feral and the the different the types fits of, and, and stuff. the fits mm-hmm. and stuff. A woman, uh, one of the women, a white woman there, uh, Mary Sibley, went to Tatuba and the other servant of uh, Samuel Paris, John Indian, and told them to make a witch cake. Which involves urine. Yeah, witch cake involves you like making a cake with pee in it and feeding uh, it to a dog. and uh, Who like metabolizes and expels the... And then the dog's behavior will somehow energy. point to the point to the per, the culprit. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. I can't remember who the dog... I think it's if the dog gets sick. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, so it's like everyone wins. Yeah. It's everyone involved. That I think reminds the, me, two dogs were executed in the Salem Witch Trials. One which, of the dogs was a Bradstreet's uh, dog, really? actually. Yeah. Um, well, now I'm, now, now I'm really what, mad. Now I don't know what to think. Yeah, and now we got those psychos who are, are like... They can see, like, oh, someone got ran over protesting a pipeline. Like, so, oh, well, a dog was hit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. That's me. <laughs> yeah, you and, like, Tony Soprano. Yeah, exactly. Animal rights fascists. Oh. Where he spent some years as a merchant before entering the ministry. Oh, we should talk about Samuel Paris being trash at business. Um, yeah. All right, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Emerson Baker on Samuel Paris uh, as a f- basically a failure. He fails at being a slave owner uh, <laughs> in Barbados. I didn't really, so, I didn't really uh, yeah, like think when, of it that way. That's it's it's almost like failing at like I don't know what you, like failing at owning a casino or something. <laughs> Even that seems harder than it's like it's it, free fucking labor. Yeah, it's like putting uh it's like playing Resident Evil two and having maximum ammunition cheat codes. Yeah, that's why I, I was that was right on the tip of my tongue. And <laughs> and still losing. Oh god. Uh, but like yeah, you you're ex- you're brutally exploiting people's labor labor for sugar. One at of the, one the, of the point most... when that is launching capitalism into what it's known as today. Yeah, a commodity that's never not purchased. <laughs> and you fail. Uh, you have to go become a priest in... <laughs> I mean, okay, here it is from uh, Emerson Baker, though. Paris was born into a Puritan merchant family in London in 1653. In the late 1650s, his family migrated to Barbados, where his father Thomas was a merchant and sugar plantation owner. When Samuel was approximately 17, Thomas sent him to Massachusetts, where he attended Harvard College. He probably came to Massachusetts in the company of his uncle Thomas Oxenbridge, who migrated from Barbados in 1670 to become minister at Boston's first church. Samuel's path had been laying out, yet in 1673 the path took a turn. Samuel's father died, so he returned to Barbados after completing perhaps three years of Harvard's seven-year course of study dropped out yep he was a dropout which culminated with a master of divinity degree that's not bad 
Oh, he did that thing where you leave with the masters. Mm-hmm. That was classic. Yeah, you, you apply for a PhD, and once you get your masters, like how now? I mean, that was sort of what I did. That's I mean, smart. I, think. I never applied for a PhD though. We should note as well that that we're very much in the same world as Orinoco, the Afro-Ben proto-novel that we did last time, in Mm -hmm. that, you know, she's hanging out in Suriname in the 1670s, I guess, 1680s, just a couple decades after him in Barbados. Yeah, Suriname being sort of Britain's uh, foothold in South America. Um, Yeah, it's weird to think that they almost would have crossed paths, Samuel Paris and Mm. Afro-Ben. I'm sure they wouldn't have gotten along. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, uh, some historians have suggested that he might have left Harvard because his father's death meant he could no longer afford the substantial cost. However, Thomas had left Samuel all of his Barbados estate worth perhaps $7,000, an immense sum, especially for a 20-year-old bachelor. Jeez. And he should have been more than set for life. <laughs> <laughs> he had remained in Massachusetts, uh, Talk er, about a trust fund, my God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, had he remained in Massachusetts, uh, he would have been among the, wealthy, the wealthiest men in the colony. Clearly, he left Harvard because he no longer wanted to pursue a career in the ministry. Oops. Uh, instead, he would be a merchant like his late father. Back in Barbados, Paris worked as a sugar merchant and broker. His income was enhanced by leasing the family sugar plantation. Yeah, within a few years, his inheritance had dwindled. Oh, my God. That he should have been set for life with. Yeah. Uh, exactly how and to what degree is unclear, but it seems to have been close to total financial meltdown. <laughs> uh, this is rather surprising since under most circumstances, about the only thing that kept a Barbados sugar plantation owner from amassing substantial wealth was death from tropical disease. Oh, my God. Uh, some historians have suggested that uh, Paris Plantation was among the many destroyed in the huge hurricane that devastated the island in 1675, yet it appeared to be functioning in 1679. <laughs> uh, a decline in the price of sugar... Uh, oh, there's a typo there. A decline in the price of sugar in May have also been a factor. Um, may have also been a factor. Regardless, Paris sold his properties in Barbados and moved to Boston. Shipping up to Boston. Yay! Yeah. that and, song and new start yeah. in Boston. You listen to that song on his iPod. It's his second new start this, in the last, like, three years. This is when... Gaining and losing a fortune. This is when the iPod on uh, many years ago. You listen to that. Yeah. Shipping up to Boston. Um... Uh, here he married Elizabeth Aldridge, or Eldred, and continued to work as a merchant, but his reduced circumstances were soon apparent. In March 1682, he bought uh, his first property in Boston, purchasing a shop and wharf from merchant Richard Harris for £270. Pounds. Yet he had to borrow an additional £420 pounds from Harris to purchase goods to begin operating as a merchant. Uh, a year later, Harris sued Paris to recover the loan. <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, 7,000 pounds is what he had. He's definitely like, he's charting out this kind of uh, archetype that we'll, we've seen already many times, but we'll see many more times in American history, which is this kind of like middling guy who catches a break and completely fucks it up (laughs) and then way overcompensates for it by just like harbinger or like helping create some sort of disaster, (laughs) like the Dick Cheney's of the world. Right. Oh, interesting because parallel. There, yeah. 
Like, the only thing they're capable of doing is surfing on Empire somehow. Kind of, yeah. But not even that. Like, they, yeah. And then they're like, they finally put all their, like, focus and energy into something, like, truly horrific. Uh, uh, his biographer suggests Paris was a man driven to succeed to provide the financial security for himself and his family that he had known as a youth. His studies at Harvard, his sugar plantation, and his work as a Boston merchant should have almost guaranteed considerable wealth and status. But Paris had failed at all of these undertakings. By 1689, his Harvard schoolmates were by and large accomplished ministers and respected members of their community. Meanwhile, the Boston waterfront was filled with the mansions and warehouses of prosperous merchants. Paris must have been particularly troubled by the rag-to-riches career of William Phipps, whose warehouse sat next to Paris's in Boston. Uh, in the afterward... In the aftermath of the Salem Witch Trials, quoting from the Book of Numbers, Paris averred that God has been righteously spitting in my face. Oh yeah, that's a guy. Who's, that's a guy who's doing great. Like he's his, his psyche is fine. His finances are fine. I mean, damn to to fail as a uh, sugar slave plantation. Oh yeah. What only makes more sense that like some guy who's like rolls into town is like literally do not set me off. And it's not like he was doing that with, like, he was doing that with $7,000 already in the bank from his dad. Yeah. That would have set him for life if he just lived in yeah. the colonies. Damn, man. I think that makes it so much more depressing that somebody like that was really the guy who, like, initiated this whole affair, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like, he wasn't even a good villain. Yeah, he just, like, showed up. Just, like, how he ruined... It's not too dissimilar how he ruined that that plantation in Barbados he's like well my job is done here I'll go to the next town and ruin everything which is Salem adventures as one does who can no longer bear to be barred from the sight of her beloved but she is also very frightened because her slave sense has warned her that as always trouble in this house eventually lands on her back what will I lift up my soul my god I have put my trust in thee my out of here She'll be hearty soon. Oh, let me not be confounded, neither let mine enemies triumph over me. For all they that hope in thee... My shall... Betty, she's not going to die. Out of here! Out of my sight! Out of my... Oh, my God. God, help me. <laughs> Betty? Child? Dear child, will you wake? Will you open up your eyes? Becky, little one. Uncle, Susanna Walcott's here from Dr. Griggs. Oh, let her come. Let her come. Miss Susanna. What does the doctor say, child? He bid me tell you, Reverend Sir, that he cannot discover <coughs> no medicine for it in his books. Then he must search on. Aye, sir, he have been searching his books since he left you, sir, but he bid me tell you that you might look to unnatural things for the cause of it. No. No, there be no unnatural cause here. Tell him I have sent for Reverend Hale of Beverly, and Mr. Hale will surely confirm that. Let him look to medicine and put out all thought of a natural cause here. There be none. Aye, sir, he bid me tell you. Speak nothing of it in the village, Susanna. Go directly home, child, and speak nothing of unnatural causes. Aye, sir. I pray for her, sir. Uncle? The rumor of witchcraft is all about... I think you'd best go down and deny it yourself. The parlor's packed with people, sir. I'll sit with her. And what shall I say to them? 
That my daughter and my niece I discovered dancing like heathen in the forest? Uncle, we did dance. Let you tell them I confessed it and I'll be whipped if I must be. They're speaking of witchcraft. Betty's not witched. Abigail, I cannot go before the congregation when I know you have not opened with me. What did you do with her in the forest? We did dance, Uncle. And when you left out of the bush so suddenly, Betty was frightened and then she fainted. And there's the whole of it. Child, sit you down. I would never hurt Betty. I love her dearly. Now look you, Abigail, your punishment will come in its time. But if you trafficked with spirits in the forest last night, I must know it now. For surely my enemies will, and they will ruin me with it. We never conjured spirits. Then why can't she not move herself since midnight? So, yeah, uh, the the enemies Paris is talking about is he's this new minister in Salem Village. And we talked about the separatism between Salem Town and Salem Village in the last episode. Salem Village basically doing a Brexit maneuver, being like, we want to have our own church. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking that while I was reading it. And that's when I, I got really self-conscious about the Brexit metaphor, about how it's just like blob that takes over all my thinking. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, this course. No, it's, yeah. just, it's just the constant fragmentation of civilization happening. Yeah. There's only two events that happened, 2016 election and Brexit, and everything else, and everything fits into those two categories. Yeah, so Paris has this church, and like we mentioned earlier, he had this this uh, sermon called Jesus or Christ Knows uh, How Many Devils There Are in His Church and Who They Are. Yeah. And what he's really... Um, the problem he's having is uh, Salem Village has had a bunch of turnover with their priests. And the issue is that in trying to get the separation from Salem Town, which gave them like, which said like, hey, you know what? Do your own church. You don't have to pay us taxes for church anymore. Is you know, how you take a vote and and have the new, um, and you know, sign to charter this new church. I'm not sure what the specific, found a new church. Mm-hmm. And when Paris... Uh, launched basically more people withheld the tax than signed the petition to start the new church Mm -hmm. and so he's unpopular to begin with uh, in the community uh, generally speaking but people like the Putnams and he he does have his backers and they're largely the agricultural part of the town where families that have access to the waterways or the high streets are more commercially driven and more tied to Salem town and thus less concerned with independence basically which Mm -hmm. is very exact i mean that is a brexit that's the cosmopolitan aspect of brexit right there for you um similar thing with supposedly like um although trump is completely fucking over the agricultural thing i mean i feel like that's a similar part of right-wing politics in america to the city the urban rural divide basically And I think that 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 the interaction is a great little um, distillation of a theme that we'll see in this play of like this is such a small problem. Like the Abigail is trying to express to him that this can be fixed right away, but it's this idea of like character and like and how you're like presented in society. That's what's getting in the way of just a quick solve to a pretty simple problem. Because Abigail's reputation. Because of Paris's reputation. Oh, that's right. why he can't just go down there and be like, yeah. Like they were dancing in the woods. It's I will handle it. It's not good. He's like, are you out of your mind? It becomes like, a bigger problem. He's like, I'm like, my reputation is already shit here. I can't have like my daughter and niece dancing in the forest. So that little that the, like that attempt to paper it over only like 
throws fuel onto that fire. Right. And, I mean, Abigail's got her own reputational concerns, too, because of uh, the, the harlotry accusation that will come later uh, against uh, John Proctor. Mm-hmm. Abigail, your punishment will come in its time. But if you trafficked with spirits in the forest last night, I must know it now. For surely my enemies will, and they will ruin me with it. We never conjured spirits. And why can't she not move herself since midnight? This child is desperate. It must come out. My enemies will bring it out. Let me know what you've done there. Do you understand that I have many enemies, Abigail? I've heard of it, Uncle. There is a faction that has sworn to drive me from my pulpit. Do you know that? I think so, sir. Now then, in the midst of this disruption, my own household is discovered to be the very center of some obscene practice. Abominations are done in the forest. For sport, Uncle. You call this sport? Abigail, if you know anything that may help the doctor, for God's sake, tell it to me. I saw Tichuba waving her arms over that fire when I came on you. Why was she doing that? I heard a screeching and a gibberish coming from her mouth. She was swaying like a dumb beast over that fire. She always sings her Barbados songs, and we dance. Abigail, I cannot blink what I saw, for my enemies will not blink it. I saw a dress lying on the grass. A dress? I, a dress. And I thought I saw... Someone naked running through the trees. No one was naked. You mistake yourself, Uncle. I saw it. Now you tell me true, child, and I pray you, you feel the weight of truth upon you. For now my ministry's at stake. My ministry and perhaps your cousin's life. Whatever abominations you have done, give me all of it now. For I dare not be taken unaware when I go before them down there. There's nothing more. I swear it, Uncle. Abigail, I have fought here for three long years to bring these stiff-necked people to me. And now, just now, when some good respect is rising for me in the parish, you compromise my very character. I have given you a home, child. I have put clothes upon your back. Now you give me a bright answer. Your name in the town... It is entirely white, is it not? I'm sure it is, sir. There'd be no blush about my name. Is there any other cause than you have told me for your being discharged from Goody Proctor's service? I have heard it said, and I will tell you as I heard it, that she comes so rarely to the church this year for she will not sit so close to something soiled. What signified that remark? She hates me, Uncle. She must, for I would not be her slave. It's a bitter woman, a lying, cold, sniveling woman, and I will not work for such a woman. She may be, yet it has troubled me that you are now seven months out of their house, and in all this time no other family has ever called for your service. They want slaves, not such as I. Let them send to Barbados for that. I will not black my face for any of them. You begrudge my bed, Uncle. No, no. My name is good in the village. I will not have it said that my name is soiled. Lady Proctor's a gossiping liar. No, no, I cannot have anyone. Why, Goody Putnam, come in. It is a marvel. It is surely a stroke of hell upon you. No, Goody Putnam, How high did she fly? How high? No. No, she never flew. Why, it's sure she did. 
Mr. Collins saw her going over Ingersoll's barn and come down light as a bird, he said. Now, look, you goody Putnam, she never... Oh, good morning, Mr. Putnam. There's a providence the thing is out now. There's a providence. Why, what's out, sir? What's... Why, her eyes is closed. Look, you, Anne. That's strange. Ours is open. Your Ruth is sick? I'd not call it sick. The devil's touch is heavier than sick. It's death, you know. It's death driving into them forked and hoofed. Oh, I pray not. Why, how does Ruth ail? She ails as she must. She never waked this morning. But her eyes open and she walks. And she sees not, hears not, and cannot eat. Her soul is taken, surely. They say you've sent for Reverend Hale of Beverly. A precaution only. Mr. Hale has great experience in all demonic arts, and he I thought... He has indeed. And found a witch in Beverly last year, and let you remember that. Now, goody Anne, they only thought that were a witch, and I'm certain there'd be no element of witchcraft here. No witchcraft? Now, look you, Mr. Paris. Thomas. Thomas, I pray you leap not to witchcraft. I know that you, least of all you, Thomas, would wish so disastrous a charge laid upon me. But we dare not leap to witchcraft here. They will howl me out of Salem for such corruption in my house. A word about Thomas Putnam. He was a man with many grievances, at least one of which appears justified. Some time before, his wife's brother-in-law, James Bailey, had been turned down as minister of Salem. Bailey had all the qualifications and a two-thirds vote into the bargain, but a faction stopped his acceptance for reasons that are not clear. Thomas Putnam was the eldest son of the richest man in the village. He had fought the Indians at Narangonset and was deeply interested in parish affairs. He undoubtedly felt it poor payment that the village should so blatantly disregard his candidate for one of its more important offices, especially since he regarded himself as the intellectual superior of most of the people around him. His vindictive nature was demonstrated long before the witchcraft began. Another former Salem minister, George Burroughs, had had to borrow money to pay for his wife's funeral, and since the parish was remiss in his salary, he was soon bankrupt. Thomas and his brother John had Burroughs jailed for debts the man did not owe. The incident is important only in that Burroughs succeeded in becoming minister where Bailey, Thomas Putnam's brother-in-law, had been rejected. The motif of resentment is clear here. Thomas Putnam felt that his own name and the honor of his family had been smirched by the village, and he meant to right matters however he could. Another reason to believe him a deeply embittered man was his attempt to break his father's will, which left a disproportionate amount to a stepbrother. As with every other public cause in which he tried to force his way, he failed in this. So it is not surprising to find that so many accusations against people are in the handwriting of Thomas Putnam, or that his name is so often found as a witness corroborating the supernatural testimony, or that his daughter led the crying out at the most opportune junctures of the trials, especially when... But we'll speak of that when we come to it. Yeah, so Putnam, um, the Putnam family was the main family discussed in Salem Possessed that was the agricultural family locked out of the new commerce. Uh, the, and it is true that he failed to get the inheritance that he expected from his very rich father, and that went to a stepbrother who also, who was kind of the black sheep of the family, 
uh, and hated by the rest of his. And he's actually on the other side of the witch, tr- the Salem witch trials proper from uh, the rest of the Putnam family um, because he married into a, a, a rich family that did have access to that commerce, those commerce connections. Um, so Thomas Putnam was a very resentful guy, and I think it is one of the better sort of truths captured by Miller in this that his character specifically because I think um, there's nothing that I read in any of my research that makes me think this representation is um, unjust to Putnam I think Putnam is horrible yeah although we should mention that his wife um, what's her name Anne Putnam Mm -hmm. in the play she talks a lot about having lost I think eight of her nine babies (laughs) babies <laughs> and in uh the real historical record she did not right yeah he makes her more sympathetic in that regard which is or like gives her grounds to kind of claim that witchcraft has been practiced on her yeah right kind of thing i think it's good rebecca nurse that delivered in the play delivered her babies and she says they all shriveled in her hands yeah. therefore she must be a witch as is Rebecca Nurse in the historical story? Is she an older person in the town? I can't remember. In their in real life, yeah, uh, yeah. At least her husband's like a well-established sort of property owner. Okay. Um, two other things the Putnams had working against them is they uh, regenerated generations quickly, which meant the third was ready for new land before, uh, uh, say, the Porter family was. They took longer to reproduce. And also, um, um, oh, I just crossed the door. oh yeah, they tried to set up an ironworks, uh, mm-hmm. and that failed as well as like a some. Um, so you have these this economic struggle. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's where like the twenty sixteen metaphor comes in, or these these people are mobilized as like these these people who are semi affluent who are now having to deal with the idea of a downwardly mobile future for the first time. And how they choose to react to that, uh, those prospects is, all right, some people need to die, <laughs> basically, <laughs> which is a very similar uh, uh, emotional state that we're seeing played out currently. And actually not that far of this um, uh, uh, undercurrents beneath uh, House of Seven Gables, actually. Yeah, yeah, that is true, actually. Um. Oh, and uh, so Putnam gave Paris ownership of the parsonage mm-hmm. uh to s- sweeten the pot a little bit um which was also like uh, talk about emolument and office and that sort of thing and people weren't happy about that right yeah exactly <laughs> and these, these town people were vicious i mean I, I don't like i don't like paris either but when they're like withholding firewood which is essentially just a way of <laughs> having him freeze to death him and his family is uh, it's pretty badass yeah although i think there was and i think this is the same possessed maybe where uh they wanted to just give him some allowance so he could figure out his own firewood situation (laughs) but he's like no you have to individually deliver it Mm. to me as like a sort of offering type of thing like i'm your priest you guys yeah Yeah. he's really devils All right, so basically, uh, Reverend Paris goes to address the crowd finally. Uh, Betty attempts to jump out the window. Um, There's a scene where Abigail basically tries to convince all the girls to stick to the story and keep things under wraps, uh, eventually threatening to shudder them uh, in the nighttime with a knife, basically, if they don't keep to the story. 
Uh, and they're freaking out because she basically went a bit extra uh, during the um, the ceremony. This is in the play, too. It's not just the movie, right, where she yeah. drinks the blood. Um, that basically tried to, a love charm to try to get John Proctor um, away from Elizabeth Proctor. But the suggestion is that she may have also wanted to kill Elizabeth Proctor. Right. That so it was like a black magic to... Right. Get rid of her. Yeah. And you can see that theme, that earlier theme deepening because, you know, like in the same way that Paris is trying to protect his reputation, his like his standing by papering over something in his conversation with Abigail, she's doing the same thing where it's like, we're just dancing. Wait, we, we're just having a good time. But in reality, you know, this whole thing is set off by another lie. Yeah. I like the bit where the, where uh, Paris is. They're like, was there anything in the pot? And they're like, that jumped in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Frog. the frog. Yeah. Um, Betty uh, Paris faints again, a fainting spell. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. Uh, Abigail's trying to get me to lie. Elizabeth's husband, John Proctor, enters. Um, he confronts Abigail. She was once his servant. They had an affair. Uh, Abigail maintains feelings for him. Uh, and Betty, who is passed out, hears all this, begins screaming. Uh, as prayer is said below, Paris and various other lo- uh, various others run in. Uh, Miss Putnam blames witchcraft for her losses that you mentioned earlier of her children, um, b- blaming the uh, the uh, the midwife, either Sarah Good or Osborne, one of the Sarahs. Mm, I think it's Good, but oh, wait, um, is it Rebecca Nurse? Oh, maybe it is Rebecca Nurse actually. Mm, I think so. Um, can we talk a minute about Rebecca Nurse, actually? Yeah, go for it. I, I, I like her as a conceit in this play because she's the only character, at least that I can remember, that's has like some sort of like advanced age and like gravitas to her and wisdom. Yeah, and you could almost say that that she's like slotted in as like the traditional Greek chorus. Oh yeah, because she makes reference to like I've seen this before, like yeah. I know like what's coming. But what I like. I like Miller's twist on that idea is that one, no one's listening to her. And like, that's his like American ethos that there is no American history in for Americans because it just gets destroyed every 10 years. And that the other thing is what makes her a prophet is because she has some sort of memory of what has happened like in the very near past. Mm. And that's what makes her um, like, both un, no one wants to listen to her, but also incredibly wise. And it's like, it's a, a real, her presence in the play is such a, a damning indictment of uh, the American project. I think that's quite uh, poignant. She's also very maternal. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, like her wisdom is very kind of much of the domestic sphere. Like she's delivered these babies. She's like, no, these these girls are just being kids. You know, yeah. I've seen this before. You just need to let them tire themselves out. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that yeah she also is murdered is yeah yeah it's just a, it's highly so significant it, yeah. and troubling. Can we talk about Abigail just briefly as well? I yeah. I mean <clears throat> Abigail is kind of driving so much of the persecution that happens. Um, she's really in control of the narrative, and I think to that extent she's been understandably kind of like villainized in productions and when we read the play um but i guess i just never stopped to consider her as possibly like deserving of sympathy 
in that in this scene where she confronts John and talks about how they had the affair and she still has feelings for him, she she tells him, you know, like you put knowledge in my heart, you you took my innocence, like he's the first man that she's fallen in love with and I think it's just there's like a moment where you do feel a little bit of sympathy for her. Wait, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think like, and it's funny how much, because her age is fictionalized in this. She was yes. actually really 10 years old. There's probably not an affair, um, hopefully. Anyway, right, Jesus. right. Um, but the the way he plays with her age, it's like he puts it at one where I think it's low enough where you should sympathize with her. Yeah. Not necessarily that it would have for that time period. But, like, I think even for modern audiences, I think there's something to that. She's not, like, 22 or something like right. that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and she's an orphan as well. And right. Her parents have been, been murdered. Been through a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, to, yeah, to to what you were saying, Grace, I think that there's something in their, their asymmetrical understanding of their relationship. It's not, it's not necessarily in the text, but I think it's kind of, there's, it's hovered around that. In, in my reading of it, that John Proctor, they maybe had like had some sort of liaison once, mm-hmm. and for John Proctor, it meant nothing. Like literally, meant nothing. It was like an, a, something of convenience, and for literally her, a roll in the hay. Yeah, yeah. And for her, it, it meant everything. It was like a whole world opening yeah. up, and and she can't she can't cross that that chasm yet. Of like she she high like all these. I feel like all these like fictions that she's spinning it's all centered around this idea that john proctor is like worth her love and time and attention and that's like her tragedy as a character whereas he's like he has great value he he projects great value but he must know some part of him is of no value or that he doesn't Mm. value his relationships with other people well i think that we could maybe consider that part of his guilt at the end it's not only a guilt for what he did to elizabeth by committing infidelity it is also a guilt for maybe what he did to abigail yeah no i think so i think it's like maybe it's a guilt of a like his his thoughtless tryst with abigail may be one of many things that he's done in his life like maybe like the that's like the defining feature of his life is he just kind of goes through it and is lucky enough to be a man in 1692 where it's like well as long as you like have good posture like you're a pretty good person (laughs) Yeah, there's one other glimpse in the text, I think, of Abigail as a sympathetic character. I think later in the play, certainly in the screenplay, she accuses the town of hypocrisy, mm-hmm. um, especially as it comes to like man and wife, or all these kind of like cold, frigid relationships that she has such contempt for now that she's known real passionate love. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, that's another moment where it's like, okay, so Arthur Miller kind of made her a mouthpiece for some of that critique. Yeah, no, I think so. I think she only can really be a villain because she's, she's not doing any, sorry, she's not doing anything in, in the society that society wouldn't, wouldn't want her to do. Oh, no, never mind. She's lying. So, never yeah, mind. yeah. I mean, she takes it way too far. Yeah. <laughs> and we can uh, hint at for the first time who she might represent to Arthur Miller's biographical life, which is that uh, Arthur Miller, he like Kazan fell in love <laughs> Fell in love. Well, Monroe was Arthur Miller. Fell in love with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, he was married though, so that was a problem. So he moved back to Brooklyn Heights. And he was like, I need to stay away from her. So Marilyn Monroe kept uh, having sex with Ilya Kazan and telling him how much she was in love with Arthur Miller. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they would literally look at his photo after 
having sex apparently yeah. and talk about how much they both loved him i have to say that to me if if two people were doing that and talking about me that'd be maybe better than any relationship <laughs> that i've invaded some other relationship and that's they're talking about me and their intimate moments i would i would love that i don't know i would probably move to brooklyn heights too um uh and uh, yeah, so Marilyn Monroe sort of represents at least the temptation, um, at least biographically would have been. Um, she's the sort of um, Abigail character, I guess, in this. Um, we're going to skip. A, actually, we can go a little bit on Rebecca and what Arthur Miller says about her in the commentary uh, later in Act One here. And while they are so absorbed, we may put a word in for Rebecca. Rebecca was the wife of Francis Nurse, who, from all accounts, was one of those men for whom both sides of the argument had to have respect. He was called upon to arbitrate disputes as though he were an unofficial judge, and Rebecca also enjoyed the high opinion most people had for him. By the time of the delusion, they had 300 acres, and their children were settled in separate homesteads within the same estate. However, Francis had originally rented the land, and one theory has it that, as he gradually paid for it and raised his social status, there were those who resented his rise. Another suggestion to explain the systematic campaign against Rebecca, and inferentially against Francis, is the land war he fought with his neighbors, one of whom was a Putnam. This squabble grew to the proportions of a battle in the woods between partisans of both sides, and it is said to have lasted for two days. As for Rebecca herself, the general opinion of her character was so high that to explain how anyone dared cry her out for a witch, and more, how adults could bring themselves to lay hands on her, we must look to the fields and boundaries of that time. As we have seen, Thomas Putnam's man for the Salem ministry was Bailey. The nurse clan had been in the faction that prevented Bailey's taking office, in addition, certain families allied to the nurses by blood or friendship, and whose farms were contiguous with the nurse farm or close to it, combined to break away from the Salem town authority and set up Topsfield, a new and independent entity whose existence was resented by old Salemites. That the guiding hand behind the outcry was Putnam's is indicated by the fact that, as soon as it began, this Topsfield nurse faction absented themselves from church in protest and disbelief. It was Edward and Jonathan Putnam who signed the first complaint against Rebecca, and Thomas Putnam's little daughter was the one who fell into a fit at the hearing and pointed to Rebecca as her attacker. To top it all, Mrs. Putnam, who was now staring at the bewitched child on the bed, soon accused Rebecca's spirits of tempting her to iniquity a charge that had more truth in it than Mrs. Putnam could know. What have you done? What do you make of it, Rebecca? Goody nurse, will you go to my Ruth and see if you can wake her? I think she'll wake in time. Break calm yourselves. Uh, I have 11 children, and I'm 26 times her grandma, and I've seen them all through their silly seasons. And when they come upon them, well, they'll run the devil bow-legged, keeping up with their mischief. I think she'll wake huh? when she's tired of it. Huh? Oh, the spirit of a child. It's like a child. You can never catch it by running after it. No, you must stand still and for love. It will soon itself come back. Aye, that's the truth of it, Rebecca. But this is no silly season, Rebecca. 
My Ruth is bewildered. She cannot eat. Perhaps she isn't hungered yet. Oh, I hope you've not decided to go in search of loose spirits. Mr. Paris, I've heard promise of that outside. A wide opinions running in the parish that the devil may be among us. <laughs> I would satisfy them that they are wrong. Then let you come out and call them wrong. <laughs> Did you consult with the wardens before you called this minister to look for devils? He's not coming to look for devils. Then what's he coming for? There be children dying in the village, mister. I see none dying. This society will not be a bag to swing around your head, Mr. Putnam. Did you call a meeting? I am sick of meetings. Cannot the man turn his head without he have a meeting? He may turn his head, but not to hell. Pray, John, be calm. Oh, Mr. Paris, I think you'd best send Mr. Hale back as soon as he come. This will start us all to arguing again in the society. We thought to have peace this year. I think we should rely on the doctor now. And good prayer. The doctor is baffled, Rebecca. Well, if so he is, then let us go to God for the cause of it. There is prodigious danger in the seeking out of loose spirits. I, I fear it. I fear it. Let us rather blame ourselves. Then How may we... By the way, just to clarify, it was Osborne, Sarah Osborne, who was the midwife to uh, Ann Putnam. Blame ourselves. I am one of nine sons. The Putnam seed have peopled this province, and yet I have but one child left of eight, and now she shrivels? I cannot fathom that. Aye, but I must. You think it God's work that you should never lose a child, or a grandchild either, and I bury all but one? There are wheels within wheels in this village, I and fires within fires. When Reverend Hale comes... I remember Anne Hutchinson when she had a uh, a miscarriage that was oh, yeah. s- looked askance as if there was some satanic activity that happened there too. So um, M- Putnam, Mrs. Putnam is looking at Mrs. Nurse saying, "You've had all your kids healthy. That's a bit suspicious." Yeah, yeah. It sucks. It's it really sucks that if your kids don't do well, it's a sign of witchcraft, and if they do too well, it's also a sign of witchcraft. Right. They have to do, like, just fine. Like, one or two have to die in a group of five. You will proceed to look for signs of witchcraft here. You cannot command, Mr. Paris. We vote by name in this society, not by acreage. I have never heard you worried so on the society, Mr. Proctor. I do not think I've seen you at Sabbath meeting since snow flew. I have trouble enough without I come five miles to hear him preach only hellfire and bloody damnation. Take it to heart, Mr. Paris. There are many others who stay away from church these days because you hardly ever mention God anymore. Why, that's a drastic charge. No. Uh, we're going to uh, fade out there for, um, for a little bit. So, yeah, Reverend Hale arrives, who's sort of like the um, witchcraft expert. And at the real-life Hale would maintain, he would, he would have remorse like this Hale does. Mm. But he was also ma- maintain that, you know, it wasn't like conscious fraud it was people confused and trying to do their best um, which is interesting he's a very earnest figure yeah almost too much definitely yeah i love that when he shows up he's like got these really heavy books oh yeah yeah and all the sort of village elders go and they're like let me take your books for you and he's like oh well the weight of the authority of God or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah he's that. definitely the intellectual of his time, like mm-hmm. all intellectuals, I guess. Pray you, someone take these books. Mr. Hale. Oh, it's good to see you again, sir. My, they're heavy. They must be. They are weighted with authority. <laughs> well, you do come prepared. We shall need hard study if it comes to tracking down the old boy. You cannot be 
Rebecca knows. I am, sir. <laughs> you know me. It's strange how I knew you, but I suppose you look as such a good soul should. Oh. We have all heard of your great charities in Beverly. Do you know this gentleman, Mr. Thomas Putnam, and his good wife, Anne? Putnam? I had not expected such distinguished company, sir. It does not seem to help us today, Mr. Hale. We look to you to come to our house and save our child. Your child ails, too. Her soul. Her soul seems flown away. She sleeps and yet she walks. She okay, so yeah, Hale gets on the scene and then they start doing some interrogations. Uh, yeah, Hale questions the Reverend Abigail <coughs> meant Tuba. Um, Abigail uh, claims Tuba forced her hand to drink blood. Tuba um, says she asked for it. Paris threatens to t- uh, torture with Tuba or confession. Actually, we want the questioning Tuba about the chicken blood here. She made me do it. She made Betty do it. I bet. She makes me drink blood. Blood. My baby's blood. No, no, chicken blood. I give she chicken blood. Woman, have you enlisted these children for the devil? No, no, sir, I don't truck with no devil. Then why can she not wake? Are you silencing this child? I love me, Betty. You have sent your spirit out upon this child, have you not? Are you gathering souls for the devil? She sends her spirit on me in church. She makes me laugh at prayer. She have often laughed at prayer. She comes to me every night to go and drink blood. You bade me to conjure. She made me make charm. Don't lie. She comes to me while I sleep. She's always making me dream corruptions. What make you say that, Abby? Sometimes I wake and find myself standing in the open doorway and not a stitch on my body. I always hear her laughing in my sleep. I hear her singing her Barbados songs and... Mr. Tem- Reverend, I never... Tijuma, I want you to wake this child. I have no power on this child, sir. You most certainly do, and you will free her from it now. When did you compact with the devil? I don't compact with no devil. You will confess yourself. Or I will take you out and whip you to your death, Tijuba. This woman must be hanged. She must be taken and hanged. No, 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 don't hang, Tijuba. I tell him I don't desire to work for him, sir. The devil? Then you saw him. Now, Tijuba, I know that when we bind ourselves to hell, it is very hard to break with it, but we are going to help you tear yourself Mr. free. Mr. Reverend, I do believe somebody else bewitching these children. Who? I don't know, sir, but the devil got him numerous witches. Does he? Tijuba, look into my eyes. Come, look into me. Now, you would be a good Christian woman, would I you not, Tijuba? I, sir, Tichuba? a good Christian woman. And you love these little children. I, sir, I don't desire to hurt little children. And you love God, Tijuba. I love God with all my now, being. Now, in God's holy name. Oh, bless him. And to his bless glory. Him. Eternal open glory. Open yourself, Open yourself oh, bless and let God's oh, holy light shine on you. I just want to point out how righteous gemstones that part is, or oh, evangelical, yeah. like, mega-preacher yeah. in general. Like, I put my hands on you. And and this is mentioned in the last episode, how um, these sorts of activities that could be interpreted satanic, it depends on the adults to say whether this is satanic activity or a religious awakening, basically. Oh, right, yeah. Something that this play, that this, uh, a credit to Miller as a as a, as a playwright the the his ability to ratchet up the tension just just kind of like a dial just slowly going up in the room yeah that every time like every time a, a character says something it closes a door behind them it's like well you can't go any further back than what just happened and mm-hmm. it just keeps getting higher and higher where it's like there's no way like one person's gonna make out like alive or like two <clears throat> or three or four like like you can just see like the bodies like piling up even before like you you don't actually see these uh, executions, but you know it's like, well, they're done. Yeah, and I think Miller's are very conscious of the um, interpretive aspect of all this. It, it, he uses the word signify a number of times. He talks about the poppets. Well, what does a poppet signify? Mm-hmm. Right. 
devil comes to you, does he ever come with another person? Perhaps someone else in this village, someone that you know. Who came with him? Sarah Good. Did you ever see Sarah Good with him? Or Osborne? Was it a man or a woman? Man, woman? Was woman. What woman? You said woman. It was black dark and I... You could see him, why not her? Well, they was always talking and walking and running around and carrying on. Out of Salem? Salem witches? Yes, sir, I believe so, sir. Tijuva, you must have no fear to tell us who they are. Do you understand? We will protect you. The devil can never overcome a minister. You understand that, do you not? Aye, sir, I do. You have confessed yourself to witchcraft, and that speaks a wish to come to heaven's side, and we will bless you for it. Oh, bless you, Mr. Hay. You are God's instrument put in our hands to help us discover the devil's agents among us. You are selected, Tichaba. You are chosen to help us cleanse our village. So speak (laughs) utterly, Tichaba. Turn your back on him and face God. Face God, Tichaba, and God will protect you. Oh, God protected about... Who came to you with the devil? Two, three, four, how many? There were four. Who? Who? Their names. Their names. Oh, how many times he bid me kill you, Mr. Paris? Kill me. He said, Mr. Paris must be killed. He said... Here's where we, the part where we have that desire sublimation, mm-hmm. like a slave talking about, oh, it's not me that's having these thoughts to kill you. It's some the devil, devil putting the you. thoughts in my mind, yeah. Who? Who? Their names! Their names! Oh, how many times he bid me kill you, Mr. Paris? Kill me! He said, Mr. Paris must be killed. He said, Mr. Paris no goody man. Mr. Paris mean man. He no gentleman. He bid me rise out my bed and cut your throat. But I tell him no. I don't hate that man. I don't want to kill that man. But he say, you work for me, Tito, and I make you free. I give you a pretty dress to wear and put you way high up in the air and you're going to fly back to Barbados. But I tell him, no, you lie, devil, you lie. And he come one stormy night to me and he say, look, I have white people belong to me. And I look and there was goody good. Sarah good. I serve Goody Osborne. I knew it. I think in that scene there's a huge potential in the script for the actress playing Tituba to kind of doubly perform her like slave identity and her um you know being from Barbados I think there is like potential for her to to suddenly kind of like realize oh this is what they want me to do now Mm -hmm. like this is what I'm expected to do I'm expected to talk about with these references or, you know, with certain kind of affectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anticipating what is expected of you. Um, we talked about this in the last episode, but that's something a slave would obviously be very practiced at. It's also the yep. case that, you know, it's it's true that nobody who was hanged confessed. Yep. Nobody who confessed was hanged. But it's also true that uh, they w- didn't know that at the time. They, they didn't have as clear of an awareness of that as they do in this play. So... There is, the, the, I think, the instance where the women could have genuinely believed that they had done some illicit satanic activity, right? Like you, and, it, and this is the same thing that has people believing that a woman came into their room and sat on their chest, right? Like you interpret things that you hallucinate or imagine or are suggested to you, and in the hysteria you take them to be true and i have uh, imagined that you have fallen onto the wrong path basically yeah and i, th- I think miller is crafty enough we'll say crafty enough to use that historical irony that anyone who confessed was not executed and anyone who didn't confess was and 
irony is like shot through this play, like especially dramatic mm-hmm. irony, that there is spirits and demons are invoked in every single act. And when you watch it being performed or if you read it, you it does feel there's something about it that does feel satanic. That there is something like quite panicking and and, and evil like mm. about the scene that you're seeing, and it's but it's the people that are attempting to like safeguard their town from wickedness that are in a sense like quite ironically bringing wickedness into that town, mm. and that everyone who's like you know part of the church or part of the town is actually an agent of Satan, and that, to me that's almost explicit like in this play. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about generational warfare too. Okay. It's basically, these girls are all just, they're all just saying, okay, boomer, to <laughs> What, the, all the, the ones elders. that are faking everything? Yeah. Well, it's like very much um, an attack on the the older, wiser, uh, more kind of traditionally authoritative parts of society from these young girls mm-hmm. and like we were saying the power dynamic being kind of inverted yeah yeah I, I had a reading also that i can't tell how much was i just was in the the place i was in but not too different from that that there's some sort of subtext that the actions of some of these characters initiate like a, a move away from theocracy and that's like where the real triumph is and some of their achievements yeah that beyond death that like they've kind of helped remove in in the way that those young women do but also in proctor's act is a way of like loosening the grip of theocratic uh, like autocracy from uh salem yeah i think um at the end of the play or at least at the end of the text miller says to all intents and purposes the power of theocracy in massachusetts was broken you right. know, after this episode, and I yeah. think... So I guess you could say it was explicit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on a quick through uh, the next few chap or the next, through, uh, next three acts. Um, act two, Proctor comes home from hunting. He's just a farmer in this play. Uh, a rabbit... This is an interesting little touch. Uh, a rabbit has ventured into the Proctor's house, and that's what they're going to eat for dinner. Mrs. Proctor says, yeah, it just came in, which... That's a familiar. If yeah. you were uh, being afraid of witches at this time, any sort of weird behavior by an animal like that would be completely suspicious. So I, it's almost like a coy little suggestion by Miller that there's like some sort of actual. If you mm, wanted to do an alternate some ambiguity, re- yeah, yeah. If yeah. you wanted to do an alternate reading that they actually were witches, I don't think there's probably much more of those. But that's a, a interesting one. Well, the idea of a familiar also comes up in the trial, but the the bird, the bird flying yeah. around, yeah. There's a tension. Uh, Elizabeth is updating John from about what's going on at the courts. And uh, basically uh, c- kind of guilts John into telling the court about what um, Abigail told him. About how, yeah, we were just dancing in the woods. We didn't, it wasn't really Satanism. And, uh, and Proctor's pissed off. And actually, I think... You can make a case that um, John's right that you should be cautious in how you go and try to impugn the, the, the credibility of Abigail at that time because she is the lead accuser. And, uh, he's, but he lashes back at his wife because she you know, knows that he's slept with her. Um, so you could freeze beer, which is... Oh, a, yeah. Um, 
That's a great line. Yeah. Uh, Mary Warren, their servant, comes back. She's one of the girls that's helping all the accusations. And she comes back with a puppet and plants it into the house there. Um, But I do think Elizabeth is right in that, at least in the themes of the play, if like what this one person lying to another person lying to another person which is leading to this like death of innocent people the only way to stop this chain of reaction this this chain reaction is for someone to like bear witness to the truth right and unfortunately for john proctor he has a lot at stake bound up Mm -hmm. in that truth which is happens to be true of all of us whenever we want to bear witness to something true yeah so elizabeth says like she has an arrow in you yet john Threatens to whip Mary Warren, and in real life, he did do that. Um, he he uh, abused Mary, and he threat. He also said, "Hey, if John Indian is starting to act up too, which he did in real life, um, he started showing symptoms. One of the few males who did, then I'll beat him too." So that's John Proctor, what the real guy was. That's the tavern owner. In yeah, him. exactly. Yeah, get you out of here, pal. <laughs> and then yeah, Hale comes basically more and more. Magistrates come, including Hale and Ezekiel Cheever, the Cheever, uh, the um, John Cheever's uh, ancestor. ancestor. Hmm. He put the you got Cheever and Hawthorne in there. Uh, and Miller is pretty, pretty Hawthorne esque. I mean, I know it's in Salem, so it's hard not to make that designation. But I think his themes about you know the laws of unintended consequences and nothing really. There's no such thing as progress. I think he's a very Hawthornian kind of thing. I think he's more of a progressive and less of a conservative than Hawthorne is. Absolutely, but I do think they they share a a similar, like, bleak outlook on the... I think, uh, like, Miller may believe that that progress is possible under certain strictures, but those strictures are not in place in the uh, American landscape. Right. So uh, Hale comes and uh, asks the proctors about why they never go to church. He asks John Proctor if he can do his Ten Commandments. John Proctor forgets one, the one about adultery. That's tough. That sucks. That really sucks. Yeah. So that is brutal. You might as well just die, like hang yourself there. Yeah, that's humiliating. Um, again, his wife reminds him, uh, and he's like, "Well, we got him between us." So, <laughs> yeah, that's a really sweaty salesman response. Like, See, we got it. Yeah. Um, and uh, eventually, the puppet is is found with a. Uh, a, a, a pin needle. through it, yeah. And so Elizabeth Proctor is in huge trouble. She gets arrested. Pro- Proctor gets Because super Abby pissed. has got like a cut on her stomach. Yeah, or Abigail. She was found with a needle in her stomach. Yeah, so you can see there's some, some Foul play. genuine fraud going on here. Uh, eventually Proctor tells Hale about what Abigail Williams told him about, you know, that we were just dancing. Act three, we go to the Salem Meeting House. Hawthorne is doing his classic uh, rhetorical games like, how do you, if you don't know the witches, how do you know you're not one? <laughs> she had some great lines, though, where she's like, I'm, like, I would know if I was a witch or something like that. Or if I was a witch, I wouldn't tell you. I can't, no, I can't remember now. But there's like some pretty good retorts on her part. Right. Well, she's the, yeah, the lower class the women, very, a little bit more. I think that's uh, probably Osborne. Uh, so Giles Corey comes in, and he's gotten his wife uh, locked up because he was talking about the book she's reading. He was complaining about that, so that put her under suspicion. He's a, a landowner, though, and uh, been in court many times because uh, he knows his rights. So they get Mary Warren to uh, say that it was pretense, 
Danforth, the, the magistrate that's overlooking it, is upset that they did this publicly, saying they want to overthrow the court. Giles is like, I know my rights. Danforth is getting pissed off that everyone's stressing him out about whether or not they're going down the wrong road because he says there's a plot to topple Christ in the country. Uh, which Again, justifies it could have been any time today that you hear that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is... This, all, HUAC and uh, modern Republicans and the theocrats. It's yeah. all the same thing. All right? But Hale is starting to believe um, the proctors at this point, so he's taking up that cause. Danforth questions <clears throat> Warren and then goes to the accusers, which he should have fucking interrogated separately. <laughs> so he says, hey, this this girl is accusing you all of lying. Instead, Instead of asking them all in a group so they can like tell that they're all maintaining solidarity, take them one by one. Say, "Hey, Mary, Mary Warren said you're lying," and all this would have been over. Yeah, but, uh, but the play would have been really long. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it turned into a seven act play. I don't know. I bet one of them would have uh, crumbled very quickly. Hmm. Um, it's like how Bush and Cheney couldn't be interviewed separately for the 9/11 Commission. No shit. Yeah. What? That's a good little fact. That's a little fact there. Uh, but it, that was was that before or after uh, Kissinger was put in charge of it? I didn't know he was in charge of it. Uh, they tried to put Kissinger Associates uh, in charge of it, and people were upset about that. And they're like, and uh, that's part of what's the stuff that's kept under wraps. That's um, good. National security phone. National security. Um, <laughs> so the girls maintain solidarity. The accusers and Proctor's like. He says, it is not a child of Abigail Williams because he's like, I've known her. And everyone's like, whoa, dude, don't yeah. like take it easy. But he's like, no, seriously, though, I have slept with her in my mm. barn uh, or in the place where my animals sleep. He said the barn. Where right? my beasts are. Beasts so, lay. Yeah. 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 They're like, just tell us what happened, man. That's just, you don't have to be like uh, Byron about it for God's sake. <laughs> And then, so Hawthorne has a brilliant idea uh, to marry Warren um, to say, hey, you said you were faking the fainting spells earlier. Uh, do it now. And she has trouble doing it now because it is a social sort of performance, Ugh, right? That's a horrible moment. It's a great moment, though. Great like, good. A, and lasting psychological moment because I feel like even for 953, that's a pretty advanced understanding of psychology yeah. and mass psychology. Well, it reminds me that the... The witch trial part where that remember where the woman is nervously laughing on on trial and he's like why are you laughing she's like I can't help it there's that that kind of thing where it's like yeah sir good like yeah. how you act on on like when you're on the spot is so much different than yeah. yeah yeah I hate that shit do we know how old Mary Warren was uh, in real life or in this play in I real life know. I'm not sure mm. about either. Um, but, I mean, she was a servant. In, at least in this play, they make a point of her being around uh, independent age because she's starting to give them a little bit of lip about what she's allowed to do and is she, if she's allowed to go to court or not. <laughs> and then there's this other problem thing, which is important for the plot, but in real life, you're like, come on, did you really have to do that? Where John Proctor's like, yeah, I have slept with Abigail Williams and my wife knows that that's why she threw her out of the household as a servant. Proctor could have just said, like, he had suspicions or, or she had suspicions or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, he, Danforth gets him to say, yes, she knew her for a harlot. And she and says, like, well, okay, she'll come and testify to that much, right? 
Elizabeth is called to testify, and she denies it because she wants to save um, John Proctor's blushes, basically. Yeah. And huge irony there because she's <clears throat> she's known as a character who literally cannot lie. Right. Um, and the fact that you know this is maybe the one time in her life that she's told a lie, and it's to save her husband's reputation is kind of tragic yeah, yeah it's like the the pinnacle point or like the the um like the apex of this whole like trying to maintain your character regardless of what you do and, and it's people like elizabeth that get caught up in that kind of thing that she's the one who's going to be punished for all of it almost like a christ way like she's going to take she's going to take on like the sin for john proctor yeah. being a philanderer and a, and a just not a good person. Yeah, I, she she blames herself for keeping a cold home. Yeah, um, I think that is a genuinely moving scene in the, uh, especially the movie version. Um, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, because you know it's it's like one of those feelings where it's, it's inevitable, but you like hope it doesn't happen. You just watch it like 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 a crater falling in front of you. Yeah. So um, Elizabeth denies it. Uh, John's like, oh, you should have told the truth. I already confessed it. And she's like, oh, shit. And realizes that she's going to get um, hung probably then too, or at least she sunk him. And then after that, the girls turn on Mary Warren uh, and with this imaginary bird um, act, basic gimmick, that there's a bird flying around um, doing that. That's their, your um, familiar satanic possessed animal uh act four we go to the salem jail um tatuba wants the devil to take her back to barbados which is that's quite the interesting development that like through some sort of ptsd she may actually have convinced herself that she's in congress with the devil now. right exactly which i think a uh, devil in the shape of a woman by uh carlson which we said it last time i think um goes into that that this like i mentioned earlier they consciously could have believed it because this court and their you know religious leaders are telling them so and also like the devil being associated naturally with like the caribbean you know she's mm-hmm. like the devil's gonna take me back to barbados he's gonna come in his feathers and he's like bright colors and just yeah. the fact that he's like this very localized version of satan yeah 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 it's like this kind of liberatory force yeah uh, and then, uh, so Haythorn tells Danforth that uh, Paris is going <clears throat> mad. Um, and then we find out uh, Paris confesses to Danforth that Abigail and uh, Williams and Mercy Lewis have fled with a bunch of Paris's cash. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and Paris never gets a fucking break. We hear, yeah, he sucks. He sucks, man. She's uh, hemorrhaging money all the time. Like, I put that on the top of my house. I knew it was going to get stolen. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a rebellion in Andover. People are sick of the witch uh, trials up there. Um, someone left a dagger on Paris's door to threaten him, <laughs> which is fucking crazy. Vigilante justice. Um, but Danforth's like, no, we won't postpone because I'll make us look like we did something wrong. <laughs> Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> um, uh, Hale's like, uh, excuse me, but there's blood on my head. Um, uh, yeah, Hale's having a real moment. Yeah, Hale tells um, uh, Elizabeth Proctor that John should confess. Yeah, because he says that, um, f- like, in God's eyes, human life is more precious than, you know, this kind of, like... Um, going through the motions of being godly 
like actually just keep him alive. Yeah, no other funds. And I think Hale is an interesting character in that he's one of the only characters that goes on a real, like has a real moral trajectory in the yeah. play in that he begins basically assuming witchcraft, at least. I think he comes... Well, his whole status is like wrapped in the fact that he knows so much about right. witchcraft. And by the end, he's like, no, this is BS. Yeah. It turns out it's alchemy. Just confess, keep thing. yourself alive. Like, he's very pragmatic. Yeah, well, when we get to it, we should discuss the uh, John Proctor's final act. I think that that mm. whether yeah. he learned anything or whether what it's, I think it's intentionally ambiguous, but it is a lot to unpack. A lot, yeah. Oh, that's it. He says, "Life, woman, life is God's most precious yeah. gift. No principle, however glorious, may justify the taking of it." Hell, will you speak with this woman, Goody Proctor? Your husband is marked to hang this morning. I've heard it. You know, do you not, that I have no connection with the court. I come of my own, Goody Proctor. I would save your husband's life. For if he is taken, I count myself his murderer. Do you understand me? What do you want of me? Goody Proctor, I have gone these three months, like our Lord, into the wilderness. I have sought a Christian way. For damnation's doubled on a minister who counsels men to lie. It is no lie. You cannot speak of lies. It is a lie. They are innocent. I will hear no more of that. Let you not mistake your duty as I mistook my own. I came into this village like a bridegroom to his beloved, carrying gifts of high religion. This is basically a monologue about the limits of ideology. Yeah. The very crowns of holy law I brought. <coughs> and what I touched with my bright confidence, it died. And where I turned the eye of my great faith, blood flowed up. Beware, goody Proctor, cleave to no faith when faith brings blood. It is mistaken law that leads you to sacrifice life, woman. Life is God's most precious gift and no principle, however glorious, can justify the taking of it. I beg you, prevail upon your husband to confess. Let him give his lie. And quail not before God's judgment in this. For it may well be that God damns a liar less than he that throws his life away for pride. Will you plead with him? I cannot think he will listen to another. I think that be the devil's argument. Woman, before the laws of God, we are as swine. We cannot read his I will. I cannot dispute with you, sir. I lack learning for it. Goody Proctor, you are not summoned here for disputation. Be there no wifely tenderness in you? I like that response. Um, we've seen this before where people are presented with the argument that they know to be wrong in their hearts, whether it is or not, it remains to be seen. But they n need to dispatch it somehow. And I think Elizabeth's, uh, I cannot dispute with you, sir, I lack the learning for it when he is probably, he is being soft, sophistical, uh, I think, with his He's obviously a very desperate, damaged man. He sent people to death. In real life, he wasn't actually signing death warrants. 
that was Stoughton, who was put in charge by Mather. Yeah, I think his desperation there is is very interesting. Yeah, he looks like he sounds like he's a man who's looking for a new like ethos to to glom onto, mm-hmm. and she's like, "You're not gonna, I'm not gonna be part of your new ideology. It's not yeah. gonna happen." Okay, so you're overthrowing the Puritan theocratic ideology for this new one based on like life, mm-hmm. uh, which is like fine. Um, but he he has the ve- like the vehemence of uh, what do they call it the, the of the converted the um, oh yeah yeah the vehemence of a converted yeah. yeah yeah or the what is that phrase yeah uh, zealousness of a convert that's what it is yeah the zeal of the convert so uh, uh, Hale convinces. Uh, Elizabeth to go try to convince John to well, she she doesn't promise she'll try to make him convince. Uh, she doesn't promise that she'll try to convince him to lie, but she'll like talk to him, mm-hmm. and they have a very heartfelt conversation. Where initially John's like, I mean, my word's not good for anything anyway. I'm a I'm a lecher. Um, I'm just going to confess, and you know we can live our lives. Um, and that's kind of tough. And he, but he's also worried that Elizabeth will judge him for it. And she's like, "I don't judge you." And then they have the discussion about the affair again, um, where Elizabeth takes again responsibility for it. Um, but then John wavers, and actually, we'll play this. But uh, he wavers because not because he, he he can't tell a lie to them, but he can't have his lie be used for propaganda value, essentially. I am no saint. Let Rebecca go like a saint. For me, it is fraud. I am not your judge. I cannot be. Do as you will. Do as you will. Would you give them such a lie? Say it. Would you give them this? No, you would not. The fire was singeing you. You would not. It is evil. Good, then. It is evil, and I do it. Praise to God. Praise to God. You shall be blessed in heaven for this. And now then, let us have it. Are you ready, Mr. Cheever? Why must it be written? Why, for the good instruction of the village, mister. This we shall post on the church door. Where's the marshal? The marshal. Marshal! Marshal! Hurry! Now then, mister, will you speak slowly and directly to the point, for Mr. Cheever's sake? Mr. Proctor, have you ever seen the devil in your life? Come, mister. There is light in the sky. The town waits at the scaffold. I would give out this news. Have you ever seen the devil? I did. Praise God. And when he came to you, what were his demand? Did he bid you do his work upon this earth? He did. And you bound yourself to his service? Come in, woman. Come in. John, you you are... Courage, man. Courage. Let her witness your good example that she herself may come to God. Now hear it, goody nurse. Say on, Mr. Proctor. Did you bind yourself to the devil's service? I did. Now, woman, surely you see it profits nothing to keep this conspiracy any further. Will you confess yourself with him? John, may God send his mercy on you. Goody nurse, will you confess yourself? Oh, that is a lie, a lie. How may I damn myself? I cannot, I cannot! Mr. Proctor... When the devil came to you, did you see Rebecca Nurse in his company? Hmm. Courage, man. Did you ever see this woman with a devil? No. Did you ever see her sister, Mary Eastie, with a devil? 
No, I did not. Did you ever see Martha Corey with the devil? I did not. Did you see anyone with the devil? I did not. You mistake me, Mr. Proctor. I am not empowered to trade your life for a lie. You most certainly saw someone with the devil. At least a score of people have testified they have seen this woman with the devil. Then it is proved. Why must I say it? Why must you say it? You shall rejoice to say it if your soul is truly purged of any love of hell. They think to go like saints. I like not to spoil Mr. their names. Proctor, do you think they go like saints? This woman never thought she'd done the devil's work. Now, look, mister, I think you mistake your duty here. It matters nothing what she thought. She is convicted for the unnatural murder of children. You for sending your spirits out upon Mary Warren. Your soul alone is the issue here, mister. And you will prove its whiteness or you cannot live in a Christian country. (coughs) Now, sir, what others conspired with you in the devil's company? To your knowledge, has Rebecca Nurse... Ever... I speak my own sins. I cannot judge another. I have no tongue for it. Excellency, it is enough. He confess himself. Let him sign it. Let him sign it. It is a great service, sir. It will strike the village that Proctor confess. I beg of you, sir, let him sign. The sun is up, Excellency. The way they keep saying the sun is up, Excellency, is if like when you want to get this news to the presses, guys, we got a hot story here. Is that we, what it is? Yeah, we want to publicize mm. to people. Isn't it that they're gonna hang them when the sun comes up? Well, I, I think that is part of it too. I mean, the, uh, that's almost <coughs> a way of publishing in itself, like right? Like mm. the reason you're doing this is to show the authority of the court. Sign your testimony. Give it to him. Well, sign it, man. You have all witnessed it. You will not sign it? You have all witnessed it. What more is needed? Do you sport with me, sir? You will sign your name to it, or it is no confession. Uh, your last name, mister. Praise be to the Lord. Now, Mr. Proctor, if you please. No. Mr. Proctor, I'm... No, no, I have signed it. You've seen me. It's done. You have no need for this. Proctor, the village must have And the village, I confess to God. God sees my name on this. It is enough. No, no, it is not enough. You came here to save my soul, did you not? Here, I have confessed myself. It is enough. I have not confessed. I have confessed myself. Is there no good penitence but it be public? God does not need my name nailed to the church. God sees my name. God knows how black my sins are. It is enough. Mr. Proctor. You'll not use me. I know Sarah Good at Tituba. I'm John Proctor. You'll not use me. It is no part of salvation that you use me. Mr. Proctor, I, I, I wish... have three children. How may I teach them to walk like men in the world? And I sold my friends. You have not sold your friends. Beguile me not. I blacken them all when this is nailed to the church the very day they hang for silence. Mr. Proctor, I must have good and legal proof that you... You are the high court. Your word is good enough. Tell them I confessed. Say, Proctor broke his knees and wept like a woman. Say what you will, but my name... It's the same, isn't it, if I report it or you sign it? It is not the same. What others say and... What I signed to is not the same. Why do you mean to deny this? I mean to deny nothing. Well, then I... You must explain to me, Mr. Because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and sign myself to lies. Because I'm not with the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. Is that document a lie? 
If it is, I will not accept it. What say you, mister? I will not deal in lies. You will give me your honest confession in my hand, or I cannot save you from the rope. Which way do you go, mister? Marshal! Proctor. Proctor. Man, you will hang. You cannot. I can. And there's your first marvel. That I can. And uh, we'll fade it out there, so he basically voluntarily goes to the gallows. Now, wrap this up by uh, going back to his... uh, HUAC testimony uh, and what eventually uh, wraps him up in the HUAC things is not his own uh, radicalism but uh, his relationship with Marilyn Monroe so let's go back to that American Masters documentary can we actually un- can we kind of unpack that that yeah. choice I'm curious to see what the two of you thought because there's, there's there's definitely ambiguity to it that it's going to be a big problem basically if he is no longer the breadwinner for his family <laughs> And, like, he's essentially leaving his wife and his children destitute, which is brought up in the text of the play, like, by Hale, as a reason to, to get him to snap out of it. And it's curious to me that his his arc is all about protecting his character, right? Like, that, mm. even, like, like, even from his own activity. And now that this final act is, again, still about his character. Like, it's... And it's interesting that it's like, you know, it's not to be used for propaganda in the future, but when he's like, my name, my name, this is all that matters to me. Like, it makes me feel like maybe he actually didn't learn the vital lesson. And maybe maybe Hale was able to get that lesson, even in his own kind of like highly educated way, that life itself is the answer and saying yes to life on its terms rather than being like trying to trying to make some sort of image for yourself right no matter what the cost a compromise yeah is basically what hale was counseling and i think it's interesting that hale uses the i think he uses the word vanity to Mm -hmm. describe this action and if you look at this play as just through the lens of like classical tragedy through kind of aristotle's definition of tragedy like it's possible that this is john proctor's Hamatia, it's his pride, right? And mm-hmm. and that ultimately, it, it is kind of self-regard, or it's like this very um, kind of solipsistic way of thinking about virtue. Mm-hmm. I think he, him realizing that his signature on this confession, um, and they reiterated a couple of times, like, we need to show this to the public. It's not about God. This is about showing it to the public. He realizes that, and and Rebecca Nurse is right there. She's not going to confess. He realizes that if he does, he's one like throwing more affi- weight behind the official court. Right? There's all this um, issue of like, do you want to just save your wife from the court, or are you trying to take down the entire court? Mm-hmm. And the truth is, he should have been trying to take down the entire court, right? And when you play its game, and I think this is why. The HUAC example is important because by going to HUAC, uh, Ilya Kazan validated HUAC, even though they were a joke. Mm-hmm. And so, like to, to understand that effect of your testimony, I think isn't it's 
it's it's sacrificing your personal life for a basically a the public good. Right. Um, yeah, it's like taking control of the narrative. Yeah, and I, I think it's I I actually like that. I I don't think I would be willing to <clears throat> collapse it down to. It's, it's definitely not good for the wife and kids. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I'm saying that it's like the wrong decision. Yeah. Um, I definitely see its value in context, but just I think we've been trained to read this text as <clears throat> the story of a hero, like yeah. a flawed hero finding his voice and asserting his humanity and his virtue but i i just think it's interesting like alex's reading is a good is a good counterpoint to that no yeah i definitely think there's power in the ending especially as it like it resonates with the the moments that are or the events that are happening in 1953 but yeah like yeah when you try to like like disentangle it and like look at the arc of the character there is like a high level of ambiguity at the end that it, it quite interests me as like a reader as like what what am i supposed to take away from this or where how do where do we end up it's almost cyclical in a way uh let's go back to the american masters documentary on kazan and um and miller about the cold war here and uh this is uh a bit where kazan meets miller in the woods and they and tells him that he's gonna uh, snitch kazan then called arthur miller having not been a member of the party Miller had escaped the particulars of Kazan's anguish, but he had come under attack. Right-wing groups like the American Legion charged Miller with writing anti-American plays. They called for boycotts, not only of Miller's work, but the actors who appeared in them. By the time Kazan phoned, Miller was determined to write about the anti-communist witch hunts. Miller had suddenly got a parallel in his own mind between the events of 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts, and what he saw going on around him in America of the 1950s. So Miller went round to Kazan's on a kind of double errand. One is to hear the terrible news, as it turned out from his point of view, that Kazan was going to name names, and the other was to explain that he was on his way to Salem to do the research for the crucible. In the woods behind Kazan's house, the two men, who by their own account were like brothers, the same person, took a walk. It was a cold spring day. The rain had just ended. Fifty years later, both men recalled this conversation. They remembered the damp woods, the newly blossomed trees. But the content of what passed between them, not surprisingly, differed greatly. Kazan remembers warmth from his friend, reassurance. In his diary, he wrote that Miller put his arm around him and said, Don't worry about what I'll think. Whatever you do will be okay with me, because I know your heart is in the right place. Miller remembers feelings of dread, not forgiveness. He saw a tragedy taking shape before him. And while he had sympathy for Kazan, he was also afraid of him. Had I been of his generation, he would write, he would have had to sacrifice me as well. And finally, that was all I could think of. I could not get past it. I absolutely believe that Miller felt, and this is why it was so hard for Miller to continue that friendship and to look at Kazan as being the same man that he had admired and respected and worked with and whose friendship he greatly enjoyed. I think the compromise of his integrity was so severe in Miller's eyes that he could no longer see Kazan as the same person. He had 
And so that lasts uh, for quite a while uh, through this next portion, which is um, where Miller himself gets uh, called to testify to Hueck in 1956. And uh, this is after Miller's more radical uh, period. Uh, so it's curious why, but I think this document explains it pretty well. Arthur Miller and his wife, Mary, had really just become frigid. Uh, you know, the icicles had, had formed. And Marilyn plainly melted them. Enter Miller Monroe. His marriage over, Miller went to Reno to establish residency for his divorce. For six weeks, he lived isolated in a cabin near Pyramid Lake. The only way to contact him was to write in care of Saul Bellow, also in Reno for a divorce, and by chance, Miller's neighbor. Marilyn had her own way of reaching Miller. She would call every day to a payphone located on a rarely traveled strip of highway. A nearby motel owner would occasionally answer, get into his pickup, and drive out to Miller's cabin. A week before Miller completed his residency requirement, word leaked to the press about his relationship with Marilyn. Twelve days later, he was served with a HUAC subpoena and ordered to Washington. Why would they pick Miller in 1956? He'd had a series of plays which had become less and less successful. Uh, he was not the major figure he'd been in 1949. Time to pick him up was around the turn of 49, 50, 51, 52, even the Crucible 53. They didn't do it. There was no more information on his file than there had been earlier. The difference was his relationship with Marilyn Monroe. The official reason for Miller's subpoena was a passport application he made in order to attend the London opening of A View from the Bridge. Five days later, HUAC opened hearings into the fraudulent procurement and misuse of American passports by persons in the service of the communist conspiracy. Under this pretext, the House Un-American Activities Committee subpoenaed Arthur Miller. Miller had been under the government's watch for nearly a decade. In fact, his FBI file dated back to 1947 when he was named, along with Kazan, by Jack Warner. Even though Miller and Kazan were named at the same time, they did not share similar fates. Miller was called before HUAC four years after Kazan, and in that short time, the political climate had changed considerably. The difference between Kazan testifying in 52 and Miller in 56 is also a difference in uh, American culture during the Cold War. By 1956, Joseph Stalin is dead. Joseph McCarthy has been neutered, condemned by the Senate in 1954. The atmosphere of 56 is more open. It's not as oppressive. Uh, uh, Dalton Trumbo has gotten an Oscar under the name of Robert Rich, and everybody hip knows that Dalton Trumbo, one of the original Hollywood Ten, has written this screenplay and gotten an Oscar for it. So 56 is a very different year than 52. The atmosphere is certainly not as oppressive and fraught with tension as it was just four years earlier. But if Arthur Miller was under much less political and social pressure than Elia Kazan had been, Marilyn Monroe was not. Hollywood had a hot property in Marilyn Monroe. 
suddenly she's going to get married to this man who's hauled before the House on American Activities Committee. They want to protect their product. So Spiros Skouros, head of 20th Century Fox, goes to see them in New York on the eve of the hearings to persuade Arthur Miller to name names and thus protect his investment, 20th Century Fox's investment, in Marilyn Monroe. Will he do it? Yeah, yeah. In New York, Skouros tried to talk some sense into Miller. And when that failed, into Monroe. But Marilyn, in the face of studio pressure, held her ground. She told Skouros she hoped Miller would defy the committee. But her support of Miller didn't stop there. Miller's last two plays had not done well. He now had child support and alimony to worry about. If he was cited for contempt of Congress, he would have to appeal and could be driven into debt. With the exception of money put aside for her mother, Marilyn drew up a new will and left everything to Miller. She also refused her lawyer's advice to get a prenuptial agreement and asked him to look into optioning Miller's plays. There were, however, limits to Marilyn's aid. Chairman Walters basically said to Miller, if you can convince Marilyn Monroe to be photographed with me, I'd be very grateful and you would not have to testify before the committee. Here's your uh, propaganda value uh, lesson. He wanted to have his picture taken with Marilyn Monroe for political advantage, because he knew if he could have that picture circulated when he was running for re-election, that it would look as though she had endorsed his candidacy, and that would be uh, something that would win the hearts of the public that would be voting in that election. Miller and Marilyn refused the request. And on June 21st, 1956, Miller appeared under oath before the House Un-American Activities Committee. In a dark hearing room, the chief prosecutor read from a stack of petitions Miller had signed over the past 20 years. Pleas to free political prisoners. Appeals for friendship with the Soviet Union. With each one, Miller was asked, did you sign this? With each one, the playwright answered, yes. But when he was asked to name names, Miller refused, saying, I want you to understand that I am not protecting the communists or the communist party. I am trying to, and I will, protect my sense of myself. The moment in the committee hearings when he declares that he is not going to offer up other people's names is almost a paraphrase of the speech made by John Proctor. And in fact, I asked him about that once, and he said, what else is there to say? I think that about does it. Um, you guys have anything else you want to comment on before we uh, wrap this? Uh, this is probably the longest one we've done since the Edgar Allan Poe episode. Yeah, a lot happened. I just wanted to note some things about like the the political valence of the Crucible in an international um, context. So um, I have a background in kind of China studies um, and Chinese history, and I I thought it was really interesting that. The Crucible has been performed in China multiple times, and particularly after the end of the Cultural Revolution and when Mao died in 1976. After that, it had quite a, there was quite a lot of interest in the play. In 1979, Arthur Miller actually visited China um, and went back again in 1983, I think, 
and he while he was there he met with directors and actors and people from the kind of theatre scene he also saw Chinese opera um, and Chinese drama while he was there and just a note on the fact that you know the kind of hysteria the group think the kind of two plus two equals five vibes of the crucible were all very kind of front and center in the cultural revolution which lasted from 1966 to 76 roughly for Chinese audiences I think that would have been really kind of significant a couple of like cute anecdotal things about Miller's trip to China and going back to what we were saying in the beginning about state backing for the arts right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Miller was apparently uh, quite surprised by the fact that Chinese playwrights and artists were backed by the state and a lot of them were you know given a monthly salary mm. by a government institution he loves that <laughs> yeah he yeah. was like oh that's that's kind of nice it's like a doctor um, and on the other side his like Chinese the Chinese friends that he made while he was there were surprised that the US did not have a ministry of culture which I think is amazing it's called the CIA well yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I guess manufacturing consent had not been written at that point yeah um, it's all privatized <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think that's really um, it's cool that that the crucible had an afterlife in China um, and I hope that you know, that continues. Yeah, it's funny on that note. Um, Crucible also got released in Russia uh, after Stalin died. Mm. And in Chile um, after Pinochet, I think. Yeah, and, and not just, um, I guess, The Crucible, but other plays by Miller uh, in, in the USSR. Uh, it reminds me of how, like, Cromwell died and uh, all of a sudden England is starting to do the restoration dramas yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. It's like funny when, like, then what do you got? When literally, like, it, 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 the arts are tied so much to politics that it depends on a head of state dying Yeah, uh, for them to, like, get kicked up again. And actually, just to close, um, a, just a quick quote from Miller himself. In 1996, after the movie was made of The Crucible, he wrote... Uh, an essay in The New Yorker, and the essay is called Why I Wrote the Crucible. And in it he says, It is only a slight exaggeration to say that, especially in Latin America, the crucible starts getting produced whenever a political coup appears imminent, or a dictatorial regime has just been overthrown. From Argentina to Chile to Greece, Czechoslovakia, China, and a dozen other places, the play seems to present the same primeval structure of human sacrifice to the furies of fanaticism and paranoia that goes on repeating itself forever as though embedded in the brain of social man yeah amazing that, sort of like a Hofstadter paranoid hypo um paranoid style of uh, if me with that douglas Hofstadter or someone i can't remember if it's douglas or not but it's Hofstadter paranoid style in american politics mm. is his f famous essay actually that one's pretty uh, much more elitist than uh than Arthur Miller is, but um, you guys, thank you so much. Thank um, you. This was a, a good one. I think we we fully exhausted uh, the <laughs> Crucible here. Great play though, and I think the screen mm. screenplay is also good. Um, yeah. And Galen Day Lewis is great. Uh, uh, the sets are amazing, um, mm. and Arthur Miller helped write the screenplay. So uh, check it out if you want. Um, until next time, uh, well, I'll just say, um, become a patron at patreon.com slash literaryhangover. And uh, 
We will see you next time. Actually, well, let's just go into what we're going to talk about next time. Uh, yeah, next, why, why would we end this episode? Yeah, next uh, just really briefly, next time you hear us three, <laughs> it'll be on a bonus episode of The Spike by George Orwell, and then uh, right. we'll get together for The uh, Widow Ranter by Afroben as well on uh, Bankit's Rebellion. So, uh, bye-bye. <laughs>